Darker Days was our last, best hope for gothic punk. It failed. But in the year of V20, it became something greater. Our last, best hope for Storyteller Games. The year is 2011, and this is Darker Days Season 3. Episode number 29. I am, of course, your host, Mike, the Token American, and tonight I'm joined by Mark, the most erudite, and Chris, the most creative and the man of science. So, just to start things off, uh, Mark, what have you been up to lately? Um, yeah, I've been kind of busy. Uh, got to run another mage game the other night on, online in Skype. That went uh, particularly well. It was enjoyable. Um, you always know the game is going well when one of your players uh, turns to you and says, I'm going to deactivate his intestinal flora um, with a life effect. So, Sorry, deactivate the gimp's <laughs> intestinal flora, to be precise. <laughs> uh, and then when they run out of effects, the, the, the only response they have is, uh, I guess it's running cock punch time. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> That was a good game. What about you guys? You playing much? I'm right now just finished uh, episode two of my Exalted game, so I've only just posted up the actual play report, and we decided the next episode of that. So it's all ended up with them going to the next, the first major city. So the game's kind of ramping up in its power scale, and I've just watched a few episodes, the first two episodes of the. Thundercats uh, um, series and just gone, yeah, I think I'll be retroactively changing my exalted setting to have a bit more of a Thundercats theme in there. Oh. I'm wondering if I need to have the Thunder Tank drop in as an artifact vehicle. Cause it'd be <laughs> I haven't badass. seen it. Is it good? Um, it's really good. It's, it's aimed at a more teen kind of uh, age. Um, they've made it a bit more mature in some elements and um, yeah, it's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I finished reading Glimpse of the Unknown, and it's a really good read across the board. I think uh, the way they present it's really good, and there's lots of new trinkets and toys to use in there. And otherwise, um, of course, I'm preparing for a trip to Bochum in the Ruhr Valley of uh, Germany for a mm-hmm. uh, for a job mm-hmm. interview. So I could be soon talking from Germany, near Castle Blankenstein, which is an actual <laughs> castle in that nice. area. So, yeah, that's what I've been up to. Good stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, with two of us in the same country, it just doesn't do, you know, it's not on. We've, we've got to be no. more We've spread. got to go international. Exactly. Yeah. Cool, cool. 
Well, personally, I've been uh, playing a game called Changeling the Ass Kicking, and it's going to be sweet. That's all I can really say about it. <laughs> the Ass Kicking? <laughs> oh, it's it's based off of Changeling the Dreaming, by the way. Okay, but with more okay. ass kicking. Definitely. Uh, and I'll probably have to bother you guys about how exactly I'm going to make that work, but uh, that's a that's a discussion for another time. Well, you can't just you can't drop a name like Changeling the Ass Kicking and then say, oh no 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 more. I mean, was it like kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the real the real she meets Bruce Willis, or I mean, how <laughs> how are you doing this? Okay, well, basically, in the uh, in 1960s, you know, the she come back and uh, the commoners they're just not gonna you know bow down to these. I don't know, elves, basically. So uh, <laughs> they uh, they rebel against them and uh, shoot them with guns because the she, oh, wow. well, they just have swords. Oh, cool. And Excellent. there you go. So it's a, uh, a modern take from there, and it's uh, going to be pretty cool. Probably going to be a Skype game or maybe even a message board game or a chat game. I'm not really sure. Haven't figured out all the details, but uh, probably not going to be a face-to-face tabletop, I don't think. Mm, well, we should do. I don't know if there's an interest in the listeners. I've been running some Skype games myself recently, and I think it would make an interesting feature tackling the pros and cons of that. Because uh, while there's been a lot of it that I found much the same as tabletop gaming, um, the actual lack of face-to-face has come as quite a shock to me. And, you know, I didn't realize how much I was riffing off that. So, yeah, right, maybe right. something to look at further down the line. Definitely. Yeah, so something we um about the the dip we picked up a bit on the differences of um tabletop and you know and playing online. Uh, when we did the David Hill um, interview, because he, mm. he mentioned how you can apply, um, was it Predator's Taint, uh, in different ways to fit the, the the medium that you're playing the game through. So, yeah, it'd be good to do that, because we could maybe do an overlook look at you know certain rules that just really wouldn't work away from the tabletop. So, yeah, we should look at that. Okay, we'll Definitely. pencil it in. Cool. So let's uh, move on over to the mailbag segment, and we've got one message from uh, Adrian Stagg, actually. And Adrian uh, has read the Changeling novels for Changeling the Dreaming, and he mentioned that he really enjoyed Splendor Falls, the short story anthology, and he thought that The Immortalized was decent. That's a trilogy which kind of goes along the same lines as a uh, an adventure series that they had for Changeling the Dreaming. He appreciated that there was like a good story. It is better than a lot of like gaming fiction where the uh, it's really just like a bad adventure, basically a bad DM adventure. So that's definitely something to check out if anyone's interested. Okay, cool. Thanks for that, Adrian. And let's move on over to White Wolf News, where we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah, nothing happening there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, as we speak, uh, Gen Con is, is wrapping up, and uh, I suppose we should check Twitter before we before we roll this one out, because White Wolf have just dropped bomb after bomb in the last couple of days. Um, uh, Mike, why don't, you, why don't you kick the ball off with that one? Sure. Well, I guess we're just going to cover everything step by step with what they announced for new products. Everyone knows that V20 is coming out. That's no secret. And they've also mentioned that there's going to be the Dust to Dust SAS Adventure uh, being released at the Grand Masquerade. 
This is going to be taking place in Gary, Indiana, and if you can't tell, um, Dust to Dust is going to in some ways be a sequel to the Ashes to Ashes and uh, Chicago Chronicles that they'd been working on way back in 91 to like 94. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. I love the title. As soon as I saw the title, I was just like, oh, Ashes to Ashes sequel. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really cool. And of course, they've got Strange Dead Love, which is going to be for Vampire the Requiem. And it's going to do uh, paranormal romance uh, in the same fashion as like a uh, a mirror's shard. And I know Chris, you've got some strong opinions about this. Yeah, it's um yeah, I think it's a, a really good thing to uh, bring into uh, vampire because, or actually, really for anything roleplay wise, I don't see why um, romance as a as a theme for a game has to be seen as some sissy thing. You know, this is. There's some deep role playing that you can get out of introducing those, or they can act as good motivations for characters. So it's going to be really interesting how they approach it because I think you can deal with it in many ways. And they've already hinted at in other books how, say, the Deva uh, approach manipulating their ghouls. But it'll be interesting how each clan and each covenant view romance. And if it goes into that, and it goes into the difficulty of maintaining relations then uh yeah it should be it should be a good read and also it's kind of riffing off something like you know true blood and and the like but you know putting some actual fangs and back into the content rather than being a bit fluffy yeah you know old world of darkness and wraith players will, will know that years and years ago we had uh, love beyond death which was a supplement for the wraith game that dealt with paranormal romance and uh, you know what what to do when your uh, loved one dies um and they that was one of the creepiest early supplements for wraith so if they can pull off the the same degree um, of finesse with this one and no doubt they will it will make for a, a rock solid horror supplement um, the combination of of love and death and love and undeath well, that's got that's got classy horror written all over it so i can't wait to see how that one pans out excellent uh for mage the awakening they announced imperial mysteries which is basically the high-powered supplement the epic supplement for mage the awakening and i know a lot of people have been really asking for the uh i believe it's the arc masteries or Arc Mastery, yeah, yeah, for dot six and above, that's going to be fantastic. And uh, yeah, uh, unless I'm unless I'm mistaken with this, it's being written by uh, Dave Brookshaw and uh, Malcolm Shepard. Malcolm was a guest on the show way back when. Uh, both of these guys, they know Mage top to bottom, so that's mm. just gonna. Oh, I can't wait to see it. It's going to be very, very. Yeah, good. they've already hinted at some of the Arc Mastery back in uh, what was it Tome of Mysteries. So um, yeah. yeah, to actually have some more solid rules and um, again. At those levels, because you were talking about really the powers kind of wielded even by the Exarchs now. Um, yeah. So it's really going to get into how really the the metaphysics of the of the setting works, and it's already quite apparent from the, from Age of Awakening that it's a, that's the metaphysics and how reality works is a very different beast to say uh, to Mage the Ascension. Um, so. Sure. Yeah. They have areas of overlap, but, uh, mm. but for the most part, they, they're, they're telling their stories in a different way. Um, how, how close it's going to come to the Exarchs, I don't know. Uh, I'd love to, if we could get a few glimpses of that, I think that would be really cool. Uh, but I think by definition, they're almost outside the system. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, they're so, literally outside the cage. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Uh, but seeing what you can pull off with uh, you know, with your Forces 6. and um, uh, <laughs> Forces <laughs> <Yeah>. 6? <laughs> 
Well, I remember with Old World of Darkness, there was they 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 covered it twice. Once in Horizon, where they just said, right, at, at level six, this is what you can do, and they kind of capped it there. And then much later down the line, they said, well, what if we did seven, eight, and nine as well? Um, and uh, that kind of got a bit over the top. But uh, just the idea of yeah, you know, force of six, you're going to be leveling mountaintops um, with a flick of the wrist. So yeah, you know, it's all good. Yeah, actually. Um... In Changeling the Lost, they had their epic-style source book, if I remember correctly, which really, their power level is, like, just below the true Fae themselves, like, the most powerful keepers. So, I'm not sure if they're going to be taking the same approach, but it'll definitely be very interesting to keep track of that. Well, with Changeling the Lost, the, the very, and this is this kind of theme is um, already been covered by some friends of mine that have also run Changeling the Lost, and it's very apparent that the way uh, Equinox Road approaches Changeling is it's going to the point where, at the point that Changelings, as they evolve and become more powerful, it, the question is where where does the Changeling end and the true fate begin? And that's kind of a very scary uh, thing to play with, that you can become the very creatures that steal people away. And, um, and that parallels quite well with you know how vampire approaches, you know, elders. So um, yeah, to see the equivalent done for mage, that kind of it might it might be the kind of like a, a, another end game scenario where you take the take, where you take the fight to the very top of the Iron Pyramid to the very thrones of the Exarchs. And if, if anyone is familiar with uh, Dave Brookshaw's uh, Broken Diamond Adventure Path, which you know kind of really put him on the map as far as uh, as being a mage guru is concerned toward the end of that um you know and there's a bit of a spoiler here uh exarchs do actually rear their heads and you can see from the way that he handles it there that uh, he's got a you know a really solid and interesting angle on on how this might play out in a, in a game supplement so just the idea of that combined with malcolm shepherd's uh you know awesome all-encompassing grasp of the game makes it makes for one of the most anticipated supplements i think that's been announced Outstanding. Next up, they announced the House Divided series of SES Connected Adventures. So, I don't know if you guys have heard any details about this, but uh, I didn't see too much. No, um, I, I've seen the title, and I'm not really familiar with what's coming up in that. Hmm. Is this going to be New World of Darkness um, Midnight uh, Circus? Could well be, if it's interlinked <laughs> in that way. Though, maybe maybe not as uh, as as questionable in places, but it'd be oh, good to see how it across... Say cheesy. Yeah, I've been toying with an idea of like using the concept of Midnight Circus as a New World of Darkness game, um, simply because like you know I've played different uh, played different games. I thought it'd be interesting to play each setting as that particular character type, and then in the last story choose which is their favourite character. So you say play as vampire werewolf mage and mortal and then do a final story of that series where your players choose their favorite character over all of them and have them all team up that's oh, cool. a, a wild idea of mine because no, you get no, to showcase we, it all well, but we, yeah we, if it, we, we, i'm just gonna say we've no, got go to do a feature on midnight circuits now that's yeah <laughs> cool next up on the show notes is the werewolf translation guide but mark you mentioned that they uh announced something even more than that yeah, anniversary edition uh, due yeah. out next year. Um, that was mentioned in, I, I, I'm not sure if it was a Twitter post or at a panel, but that's just huge, huge, huge interest. Not just because it's you know going to be the Werewolf 20th anniversary edition, but also that it throws more fuel to the fire that there may indeed be a Mage 20th one coming out the year after mm-hmm. that, which is, you know, selfishly speaking, really that's all I'm interested in. 
But I will, of course, oh. be getting the Werewolf one too. I uh, really enjoyed Werewolf. enjoyed the games that I ran for that. Um, so seeing a combined version of that would be fantastic. Uh, whether or not they'll be able to fit all the changing breeds in there too, you know, without the page count bloating to Tome of Horrors complete level, um, who knows? But it's definitely worth uh, worth waiting for if we can manage it. Next is the Victorian Lost Supplement. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> this is gonna be so cool yes wow it's it's yeah. good to see it come up first of all because it's nice to see the victorian period not done as a kind of a no-brainer with vampire again also i think yeah change the loss fits in with the kind of occultism of uh victorian period quite well um mm. especially around about that time you know people were becoming a little bit better at understanding how the mind works and, you know, that relates to dreams and thus changelings. Yeah, yeah. um, and also just to have a, a, a Victorian London source book is awesome for any game going. Like, you know, you just may as well just take all the setting material there and just dress it up in vampire. So, yeah, this book will be awesome beyond beyond awesome. That's all I can say. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, should be good. Should be good. Definitely. And one of the things they mentioned about it is just in the little blurb that they gave the fans, this is a time where people actually, you know, believe in fairies because uh, mm. there's those those little girls who are taking the photos with the that's right. little yeah, cutout that's fairies. Right, yeah. So it'll be very interesting to see how they approach that because they had New Wave Requiem, which kind of approached a time where vampires are very close to the uh, the limelight i would say uh they uh very close to their masquerade breaking so i'm curious like if they're going to approach something similar to that where it's very possible that that people will learn what fairies are or what the changelings are mm. or if they're going to take it in a very different direction and uh, it will definitely be a product to watch for in the future it'll be good because it's it's really setting the standard now for the fact that they've brought out what now? Uh, how many? Three, four? His no, they've got New Wave Requiem, they've got Mage Noir, they've got uh, Requiem from Rome. So, what next? I mean, I was kind of just musing to myself, well, they haven't done the obvious no-brainer there of doing Dark Ages Vampire, but maybe, you know, Dark Ages something else. You know, make werewolves the main focus of, of that, or hell, even Promethean. Would be kind I of think good we, I think were, werewolves could work really, really well with the Dark Ages supplement, but you'd have mm. to work so hard to to set it apart from the modern one, you know. Uh, yeah. And I, if 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 the old world of darkness, you know, Dark Ages werewolf has a failing, it's that it wasn't different enough from the modern era. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, uh, I'm I'm kind of particular on which version of uh, old school Dark Ages uh, Vampire the Masquerade I prefer, which was actual vampire the the Dark Ages rather than Dark Ages Vampire, purely because mm -hmm. of the the time where when it was set, right? It was actually yes. in the Dark Ages. Yes. Um, so yeah, or or even I don't know. It's just good to see more of these historical things. I mean, Geist in a historical setting could be amazing. So. Yeah, we'll see what they do. But yeah, Victorian Lost. Cool. Get it. Yeah. I will do. And next up we have Secrets of the Covenants, which uh, appears to be a clan book style of uh, source book. So it's going to have a lot of the, the in-character narration explaining everything. So if you're looking for another one of those books, uh, here you go. I think it's good. That's, mm. that's um, going to address certain 
problems. Again, I keep seeing people complain about Vampire the Requiem. Well, we'll cover this. Has lacks meta plot and it's just not you know the type of game they want. They want all that background, and so maybe this will put some of that setting, the idea of these how the politics works, and and put it more into a rather than discussing the politics, is more showing how it works through stories. So hopefully they'll put some more uh, flesh on the bones there for the people that, that need it. Um, I, I thought the covenants were, the, for me, uh, the, some of the most innovative ideas in uh, Requiem. Um, you know, the, the, the cross-clan the cross familial elements of it. So I'm really quite interested to in seeing those, those fleshed out more deeply. Mm-hmm. And next up on the list, we have everyone's really excited about this. It's called Mummy the Moaning, and it's going to be a new. <laughs> it's going to be a new core book, and it's going to be released digitally. It's going to have the open development process that we saw with V twenty, the uh, Vampire twentieth anniversary. So, I'm really excited. I've been wondering when they were going to make a core book that was released digitally first off, mm. and here we go. The one thing I'm curious about is. Um, Eddie Webb and and other White Wolf employees are on record saying that they don't want the New World of Darkness to be centered, like a a game line to be centered in one culture. And Mummy is very much intertwined with an Egyptian mythos with uh, Osiris and Anubis and Horus and all those. No, I wouldn't say that. What about those those Incan mummies and those those Incan mummies? mummies? Okay. Yeah, bog mummies. Um, you can find examples that there's like, uh, what was it? There was one in, I've actually seen one, which is uh, a mummy, a bog mummy or that kind of thing. What was it? In uh, Manchester Museum a while creepy back. They had things, a, really creepy, creepy things. Yep. And, and I they, think, so they've got the uh, like Chinese, the, the clay mummies. Chinese. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or the, um, the, the is it Shinto, Shinto priests that um, literally cause themselves to be mummified by the way that they uh, stop eating and drinking and so I'm Buddhist sure forms do that too yeah I saw yeah, that in, was in Buddhist, yeah. yeah yeah creepy but but anyway um, <laughs> we look at we look just at old world down there Mike yeah <laughs> we, look, we look at old world with Mummy of the Resurrection and the uh, the other editions that they had it was all pretty much based in Egypt with Mummy of the Resurrection they did start mentioning those uh, bog mummies which I think were from South America is that correct the Incan ones are South American. South Bog Incan. mummies is, a, is, an, is an odd phenomenon across uh, Europe and, uh, and, okay. and the British Isles mainly. Mm. Sure. So it's just going to be interesting to see like how they cover this without just sticking in one culture. Uh, if they're going to have something similar to maybe like Promethean, where you've got... Uh, Promethean has the Osirens, who are Egyptian. You've got the... Um, Pandorans. Yeah. And then you've got you've got Galateans, which are based off the Greek yep, yep. myth. You've got the Uglin, which are the uh, shamans of uh, t- the Tibetan uh, shamanistic uh, idea. Um, you've got the Frankenstein lineage, which is a classic Victorian um, mm-hmm. idea of reanimation. And you've got um, oh, damn it, can't think of the name, but they're based off the legend of Tamers. golems. Tamos. Yeah, Tamos. and that's to do with uh, Samaria, and um, yeah, so they're all different. Those are all different myths of reanimation, and so that's quite interesting because that's reanimation in the sense of it's reanimation as in it's life created from the dead, and 
and, and the thing that marks them out as different from anything else that's undead is their lack of a soul, yet they're essentially alive. So um, how are they going to make Mummy the... Is it actually going to be called Mummy the Moaning? I hope it's not going to be Mummy the Moaning. Mummy the Bandaging, I thought. Oh, or right. the ever, or Mummy the, the Ever-Living. Um, Mummy the Unraveling? How, yeah. Um, <laughs> so how they, they, um, they, they distinguish Mummy's undeadness from Promethean's undead from vampires undead and the other mummy-like undead that have appeared in such things as immortals or you know how they're going to do it it'll be interesting to see how they pull it off mm. yeah and there is just one last item on the list and mark i'm going to give you the honors of announcing this one yeah the uh, mage translation guide yeah um Again, massively anticipated uh, and kind of mooted as a possibility some time ago. Uh, but sure, translating Mage the Awakening into Mage the Ascension and vice versa. If it's anything like the uh, uh, Vampire Translation Guide, it'll be about taking concepts from one game and showing how they can work in the other and in both directions. But as always, it, um, it draws added excitement from Mage fans because of what it possibly means further down the line for a Mage 20th Anniversary Edition. So we'll get to see um, some, uh, some great inspiration there for Awakening games that can inspire Ascension games and Ascension games that can inspire um, Awakening games and vice versa, uh, which is a topic we've talked about playing with on the show here and we'll have to get around to sooner or later. Um, now, not on the list and also mentioned in the same uh, seminar or Twitter post, and I, I wish I could remember which one it was that I that I saw it on, is get this unreleased technocracy convention books for Mage the Ascension are coming as well. Um, so we had uh, Iteration X revised. We're also going <laughs> to get Progenitors, Syndicate, New World Order, and Void Engineers, finally. Um, so exactly when we're going to see those, not entirely sure. Sometime next year, I'm guessing. But that actually has me more excited than anything else that's been mentioned so far. Even the possibility yeah. of, a, of a May 20th anniversary, is, to me, is not as exciting as seeing those uh, those four missing books. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Brilliant weekend to be a White Wolf fan. Uh, just kind of, uh, yeah, crowning cap of... Of, of awesome really I think those extra four books will finally mean I will, the way I'll go back into running Mage the, uh, the Ascension will be to run a Technocracy game because um, yeah. I played in one and it's it's so great when you can play a Jack Bauer type character who uh, had, is kind of doing the Sam Fisher thing and goes, I'm going to read their mind using their alpha waves and, yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> I, it'd be great to see some updated books and just see that series Proper, to just see Mage the Ascension officially complete because without those four books it was Glaring it wasn't mission. there absolutely no, no, no. and the revised iteration X was I mean head and shoulders and then another head on top of that above the uh, the earlier versions of the convention books which you know had their moments um, certainly Void Engineers and Syndicate I thought were very good uh, but the iteration X one just really knocked it out of the park and um, if they can uh, they can reproduce the same level of coolness with these uh, these new ones. That'd be really really good to see. Um, there was a, um, I think it was a partial manuscript of the New World Order one floating around the net, 
uh, some years ago, and I I want to say that it was John Sneed that wrote it, but I, if if that's wrong, then you know, you're going to have to spank me. Um, but what I saw of that was very really good. Uh, so and you know that was a kind of post 9/11 look at uh, the New World Order, um, which is yeah really quite an interesting perspective there to have. So yeah, bring it on, can't wait. Um, and so to end their entire list of uh, stuff they're bringing out for 2011-2012, they're also um, making available to print through drive through RPG the following. Vampire the Requiem, Requiem for Rome, Werewolf the Forsaken, Forsaken's Chronicles Guide, and The Pure, Mage the Awakening, Mage Noir, Guys of Sinitas, The Main Rulebook, uh, New Mind's Eye Theatre, World of Darkness, and The Requiem. Uh, for classic World of Darkness rulebooks, we have Apocalypse, Revised, uh, Ascension, Revised, The Dreaming, mm. Second Edition, Dark Ages, Vampire, Mummy, The Resurrection, and Orpheus. Uh, we also have Vampire the Masquerade, Book of Nod. We also have Werewolf the Apocalypse, um, Heionkai, Way of the Beast, Courts. And we also have classic Mind's Eye Theatre, Book of the Worm, Dark Epics, Laws of Ascension Companion, Laws of Judgment, Laws of the East, Laws of the Hunters, Hunt Player's Guide, Laws of the Resurrection, Laws of the Wild West, Laws of the Wild West, okay, uh, Shining Host, and Shining Host Player's Guide. So they have now epic tons for you to print on the map. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. So again, White Wolf not only just forging ahead with new material, but also forging ahead by making all their old stuff available, which is good. Uh, yeah, exactly. What a, I mean, you know, I want to call it an innovation. It's not. It seems to me a kind of common sense, but how many game companies, just once the edition is dead, they're like, no, sorry, that's done. We don't play that game anymore. White Wolf has just rewritten the paradigm, to you know, pun the pun, mm. uh, to make it all available to everybody. And you know, given that these books have been developed and have been written, uh, I, I guess the overheads for them are far, far lower. Um, mm-hmm. So it's you know, it's got to be a money winner for them, and and Whoa. for the fans, it's it's fantastic. Especially with, um, I'm think we were talking about stuff to do with print on demand. That does not drive through RPG now have a printing location in the UK. So as to. that mm-hmm. as that yep. network expands, you know, books just become more and more available. And especially if they being available digitally, me- makes it easier to have digital um, digital uh, translations of these books for other languages. Because you know, it, it's not feasible to get everything translated for every language and have them all printed there for you but to then have but to have the digital ones and printed as you need them that's yeah it's brilliant so yeah and it's, it's clear people are still playing uh, old world of darkness it's more than clear that new the new world of darkness isn't going anywhere uh, but some of their books have gone out of print uh, and it's uh, makes it so much easier for a fan to be able to get hold of a book, you know, Requiem for Rome or uh, T- Term of Mysteries is out of print now for Mage, so seeing that come on print on demand would be great. Um, Laws of Ascension Companion, I heard you mention there. It took me ages to find that damn thing on eBay. Uh, but now there you go, a couple of clicks and it's delivered to your door. Fantastic. Very good. Mm-hmm. Well, there's just one thing. And Mark, you said that game companies typically come out with a new edition and then just forget about the old ones. Well, on mm. this list, bit of a conspiracy theory here, there's no Vampire the Masquerade revised, is there? I wonder why. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, I, I wondered about this the other day. Someone made a passing comment about it on RPGNet saying, well, it's a bit of a conspiracy just to get you to buy the, the Vampire the 20th edition, 20th anniversary, uh, sorry, edition core book, uh, and and thereby have all these print-on-demand books to supplement it. I thought, well, that's not a conspiracy, that's just common sense. 
why would they not make all of their Vampire the Masquerade line available again through print-on-demand with a PDF core book and maybe a print-on-demand V20 core book if that ever becomes feasible? It should makes makes perfect sense. This now V20 then becomes the perfect Vampire the Masquerade core book with which to to to, to supplement and support all these various other uh, you know 13 odd years of product. Indeed. You know, indeed. and new one and new ones coming out too. Yeah. Great. And uh, with that, I think it's time to move on over to the secret frequency. It's under the stairs. <laughs> okay, secret frequency. Yes, today we're going to be taking a look at one of the strangest locations on the planet. Denver International Airport. Now, uh, we stumbled across this one a little while ago, and the amount of weirdness that came spewing out of the computer at me when I was researching it was just almost unstoppable. It's more a point of what are you going to leave out rather than what you're going to put in. A um, little bit of background then on Denver International Airport. It was built in 1995. The territory that it occupies covers 53 square miles. They replaced the old runway there completely. The new one, however, has less runways, no discernible new technological advancements, and is 19 miles further away from Denver City than the previous one. Not surprisingly, conspiracy theorists have gone nuts over the place. There is an immense fueling system on site. Uh, there are tunnels that run beneath the place that are big enough to drive trucks through, um, set on, as I mentioned, vacant land twice the size of Manhattan. From the air, you can see these huge ventilation systems that are big enough to swallow an airline or whole. Now, so it's a large airport with uh, an overabundant infrastructure. Okay, well, it starts to get weird after that. Looked, seen from the air, there are those who argue that its runways are shaped like a swastika. As you approach, one of the first things that you see is a 32-foot tall statue of a horse, a six-ton monstrosity that cost $300,000 to make. Uh, when it was being made, the sculpture fell on its sculptor, sliced an artery in his leg open, and promptly killed him. Um, it's a rather scary-looking object uh, with big glowing red eyes. <laughs> the original plan, apparently, was, I kid you not, to have this giant sculpture of a horse shoot laser beams out of its eyes. And this was found to be, I don't know, either too impractical or just too damn insane. Uh, and instead it has glowing red eyes, and this is a quote, so that it can ward off evil spirits, a good thing to have at an airport. Um, there was one interesting video that I saw on the internet where a guy postulates that it's the same horse that appears on the cover of a related book about time travel. Uh, quite what that link is supposed to suggest, I'm not entirely sure, but you know, uh, an effigy of a laser beam shooting time-traveling horse in front of your airport? That's just got to be good, got to be good. There's a really interesting expose or uh, investigation or, um, or fantasy, whichever way you want to look at it, by Jesse Ventura, uh, where he's investigating the secret bases and government shelters that are supposedly being built all across the United States of America right now. Um, and not surprisingly, he tags Denver International Airport as one of these, one of the main central hubs. Uh, the airport itself went, perhaps not surprisingly, way over budget. Its construction, they moved a third of the amount of Earth that was used in the Panama Canal. And he was able to get in contact with a secret bunker architect who more or less came out right and said, yep, Denver International Airport hides, one, hides the biggest secret government bunker that he's ever worked on. 
Once you get inside the airport, it's a maze of interlocking, intertwining corridors, runways, and passageways. It has some of the strangest murals and artwork that you will ever see either inside or outside of an airport. These have been accused of being evil, signs of Satanism. They're made by a Mayan artist. There's one of them that's been accused of uh, showing the birth of an antichrist. And uh, again, there was a really fascinating expose on this that says the picture includes a satanic penguin, um, complete with an apparently phallic name tag. Uh, the baggage handling area, when seen from the air, is also phallically shaped. Uh, and having looked at pictures of that, you can't really argue with that, actually. Um, but admittedly, these accusations do come from a man who calls himself the third ego of the apocalypse. So you kind of have to take that under advisement. Um, a number of other murals in there focus very closely on global destruction and genocide and a link to the Mayan 2012 uh, calendar rebirth theory. Um, the, the, the genocide mural, which features lots of dead babies, has apparently been painted over in recent years. I can't think why. There's a fantastic uh, statue of a gargoyle exploding out of a suitcase, which is really one of the creepiest things I've seen in a long time. Um, the dedication plaque for the airport is covered in Freemason symbols, and the dedication stone dedicates the airport to the New World Airport Commission. Investigations later revealed that there was no such thing, and further investigations after that revealed that in fact there probably was, um, but it wasn't anything as exciting as people hoped it would be. The same plaque has an emblem with the symbols AUAG, which, you know, any sane rational person would say stands for uh, gold and silver. No, apparently AUAG is also a common abbreviation for Australian antigen hepatitis. And given that the symbols appear right in front of the mural about genocide, it's been concluded by some that this is a coded message revealing the imminent bio-apocalypse that is about to be unleashed upon us by the New World Order. The true purpose of Denver Airport, it is suggested, is nothing more than a safe house for those who have managed to get themselves onto the New World Order's golden list. It's alleged that politicians have had their silence bought by being offered seats in a secret bunker. And investigations have shown that construction work, underground construction work with these aforementioned immense tunnels, is still ongoing there to this day. Enough weirdness at Denver International Airport uh, to fill an entire episode, um, a brief few highlights there. So how are we going to make use of this in our New World of Darkness games? I'll throw out just... Uh, a brief handful of ideas and then uh, and then cede the floor to my learned colleagues. Um, well, Sears of the Throne, of course, have their possible names written all over this, and I thought it would be interesting if the geometric construction of the airport was meant to house nothing less than a fallen exarch, someone who'd come down into the fallen world and been captured there, his very presence seeping into the construction work that goes on around him, corrupting it subtly through unseen influence. Um, for Promethean characters, Denver International Airport makes an ideal destination or uh, passing through point as a whole new creepy element to the road trip aspects of that game. It occurred to me that the airport could itself be constructed on purpose, a trap laid by the Aratha for wayward spirits of transportation. The runway designs are clearly actually a spirit glyphs that lure and trap the spirits, turning them to the use of their captors. Or finally, maybe the airport is sentient and is masterminding its own growth. Perhaps it siphons off a certain percentage of passengers every day or every month for its own sustenance. There's a YouTube video of a guy showing you a uh, side route where you can get around the security cordons and go through a much faster passage that gets you to your gate much quicker. What if that guy isn't even real? What if he is just the airport projecting its consciousness onto YouTube to draw in fresh victims to this supposed fast route that leads 
leads nowhere. I don't know, guys, what did you make of this one? <laughs> I, for one, welcome our new airport overlords. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of funky stuff here. Um, Mark, did you mention the giant Anubis statue that they installed at the airport? Oh, uh, no, no. So uh, that's, that's definitely something uh, Anubis himself is, uh, I believe, the god of death. If I remember correctly, he uh, guides uh, souls through the, uh, to the, the afterlife. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you can definitely do something with that. Unfortunately, you don't have any more information about Mummy the Moaning, so I uh, can't include that in our new World of Darkness discussion. I can throw out something uh, extra. You um, were saying the Mark uh, about how it related to time travel, the uh, statue of the horse. Yes. And this yeah. is where it gets this is where it gets crazy because I have actually before we did this in the weeks and weeks we were waiting to do this one read up on some of this and it gets completely messed up with other things so the where it comes into time travel is apparently the horse is similar to this book um cover called the montau uh, project yeah that's and true. That's true. upon that it has this horse that looks very similar to the one in denver and the reason for this horse is that it's a statue that was seen by the uh tra by the time travelers as part of the experiment this Montauk project is related to, uh, is a, apparently a continuation of the Philadelphia experiment. So you can go to complete town with this all being to do with time travel and alternate timelines, and that's just complete, you know, gold to use in, in something like Mage. And just reading through parts of the book, if you were able to get hold of it, always find out the time travel thing. So maybe. Denver Airport is not only a place, it is an airport, but it's also kind of like a, a point, a, a particular kind of point in time, a crossing point uh, for everything. And some of the things that the experimenters did in the Montauk uh, experiment they were talking about is the causals in times, crazy alien monsters tra traveling through their time, uh, time tra uh, tunnel and devouring the researchers and destroying the Equipment. So Excellent. that's all on Wikipedia and completely insane. And I think you don't even need to attribute that to any form of thing in uh, anything really, it, particularly in um, World of Darkness. You could just have that as some other thing. Um, so I can't really, I, I can't really add much more because it's it's a bit of a brain overload. This one that there's so many, there's so much you can do. Like as you said, uh, Prometheans. How much the how much the airport is Pandorans waiting to wake up. They've all just been put there for a particular purpose. Um, you were saying about how it could uh, that the, the apparently the, the airport, the plan of the airport looks like a swastika, and you were talking about a season throne. Maybe the plan of the airport is not a swastika, it's something bigger than that. Maybe it's uh, one of the iron seals, one of the very uh, emblems of power of the season throne. Um, Some big Atlantean glyph kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to throw something else out there. Or for vampires, maybe it's um, to take inspiration from Blade. Maybe it's a place for the, the the final scenario where the vampires block out the sun and it's where they're going to have their uh, breeding program for humans. Um, yep. If you really want to go for an apocalyptic scenario, kind of mirror style. Um, yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, Mark, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. No, I was just going to say I have to echo the the, the brain overload idea, as I was uh, reading up on it, and you know, 
pulling ideas and jotting them down. I thought there's there's just no end to this kind of thing. As as a source of, of craziness and some of the imagery on the murals and the statues, it's just bizarre. And I I came away thinking, who built this kind of thing? What the hell? What were you thinking? You know, I don't want to look at that when I'm you know rushing to get my my flight and I'm late. I would, what go and spend the next 15 hours worrying about uh, Australian antigen virus? No, thank you. It's really kind of kind of bizarre, but. You know, clearly somebody got paid a lot of money to design the freaky gargoyle suitcase thing and, you know, the laser beam shooting horse. And I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Really quite outrageous. Little wonder that it's spawned so many, uh, so many odd stories. This is one of the things that we, we can't really do justice to the imagery here on the podcast. So for listeners, if you look up Denver International Airport uh, and, you know, go to the less less reputable parts of the web, you'll find some really, really rather odd imagery there to, uh, you know, literal images to, to, to inspire you for your games. Cool. So I was also thinking about uh, for Vampire the Requiem, if you want to crank it up to like tier three, you could have... Uh, <laughs> vampires using the underground tunnels for whatever devious plans. Uh, Chris, you were kind of touching upon this with the uh, the human breeding program, which is yeah. another very tier 3. You want to call it a tier 4 idea right there. <laughs> but the other idea I had was uh, in Vampire the Masquerade, it always made light of vampires traveling uh, in coffins on airplanes just being like shipped around like that. Which uh, you don't get mm. too much of in Vampire the Requiem. So if you are a kindred, you do not want to be stuck in this airport. I'll just say that much. And you could have a very interesting adventure of kindred just trying to survive a day to get to their next flight or something. That could be very <laughs> fun to do. That'd be brilliant. Yeah, it's, 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 it's so far away from, you know, 20-odd, 20 25-miles away from... Uh, um, from Denver itself, it's if you if you don't have the transportation, you really are stuck there. You know, if you happen to be one of the undead, who's uh, well, maybe you literally are one of the gargoyle clan who's fallen out of a suitcase. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think it would work, work really well. You could have an entire session or two based around finding a, a feeding niche inside Denver International Airport, uh, and then ideally moving on from there, or perhaps not. You know, perhaps you want to have a, a coterie of vampires who decide, no, we're going to claim the airport. That's why maybe that's why the tunnels are there. A set of vampires have moved in. There's a, a continual stream of passengers coming through all the time. There's fresh blood all the time. People coming, going. Nobody's going to be missed by, uh, you know, if if one or two get picked off here and there. Maybe they missed their plane. Maybe they didn't turn up. It is almost an ideal location for a, for a hungry group of vampires to to set up home and with the right amount of influence and resources. Sure, why not build massive truck-sized tunnels? Go for it. You know, works works for them. I can see a bunch of uh, Nosferatu vampires organising it properly, so they uh, they you ha- they actually ensure vampires going through there have the correct papers, just so they can have a reason to do some form of boon taxation on other people to get favours when they travel around the uh, the rest of the country. Mm. That would be kind of weird. <laughs> you know, you're going there. Have you got the right papers? And you look at this ugly dude, and it's like, um, <laughs> should I? What do I, what, what do you want? When you go to New York, I need you to kill this person for me because I've been asked by someone on the other side of the country to do it, and I'm not going there. You are. And what are you going to do to me if I don't do it? Um, you won't be getting on the plane, and we can put you out in the middle of the desert. Okay. Yeah, that would be really funny. And yeah, as you said, uh, Mike, a, a day in the well, uh, just a, a whole story just where it's really tight within the few hours that you were in an airport and having to survive it's just that would be really scary 
<laughs> you, could, you could have an actual timer, you know, you've, you've got three and a half hours till your flight, you know, and put a little stopwatch on the table, click, there you go, and try and do something, you know, sort of real-time. Uh, hard to do with it within the context of a role-playing game, but it could make for an interesting uh, little artifice uh, for a one mm. session. Uh, I knew one guy who, who ran a... I've always wanted to run a game where half the group are in a submarine and the other half are on an oil rig up above and you separate them into the seven parts of the house and give them walkie-talkies each. And I was talking about this to, to one of my players and he said, oh, I was in a game where the, where the storyteller did that, um, except we were all in the submarine and he's in the middle of a game. He says, right, now your characters get into the submarine. And then he stood up and went over to the side of the room and opened a closet and there were four chairs inside the closet. <laughs> and he went to <laughs> Get in the, got in with them, shut the doors, and he says, right, it's this size. Now we're going to stay in here for two hours on the submarine mission. <laughs> and ran the rest <laughs> of the game inside the cupboard. Uh, which, I don't know if I could get away with that, but it sounded like a crazy idea. Okay. <laughs> yeah, awesome, <laughs> awesome. So, uh, is that it for the secret frequency? Hmm. Yes, uh, I now have a burning desire to uh, head to Denver International Airport and stroke the gargoyle. I'm not sure I can get away with that, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> Alright, so let's hop on over to the Old World of Darkness segment. Classic World of Darkness. Um, yeah, we don't have anything planned. Today we're going to be talking a lot about New World of Darkness, if you couldn't tell. So, uh, I was going to talk about changing the ass-kicking, but Mark, you already called me out uh, to discuss that earlier. Couldn't let that one go, man. <laughs> Sorry. All right. All right. It's cool. So uh, let's go on over to the new World of Darkness segment. World of Darkness 2.0 Today, we're going to start our rapid fires. Finally, after probably six months, we're going to start talking about Vampire the Requiem, Werewolf the Forsaken, and Mage the Awakening. Give some love to the NWAD. Yep. And... <laughs> I've been trying to think about how how we could like divorce the old World of Darkness from the new and just really focus on them. And honestly, we're not even going to try. Uh, there's going to be a lot of comparisons in here because it's really the evolution of the same system. It's, yeah, it's, it's long been a, a sort of policy on Darker Days that we, you know, we don't compare and contrast them too much. We certainly don't try and get into you know, arguments about which is better and what have you. Um, but you know, we're all big boys, and I think it's, if we're going to talk about one and the other, uh, it's about time we had a, a frank look at how, how, they, you know, how they compare to each other. Um, and you, know, you stand the disclaimer is we're not, you know, we're not trying to big one up over the other, but uh, each has its advantages and pitfalls. And we're going to take a good, solid, in our opinion, uh, honest look at them and, and see what, uh, what we thrash out. Sure. So The New World of Darkness came out in 2004 at Gen Con with the release of the World of Darkness core rulebook and the Vampire the Requiem core rulebook. Why did they make the switch? White Wolf has touched upon this. I have written here flagging sales, but that's not really true. Um, they saw that their products were getting stale, and the only way to pick things up again was to make another edition of, say, Vampire the Masquerade and uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse. And that's just getting boring, to be honest. Uh, and they're just making people pay for the same material all over again with just a few tweaks. Really, they just didn't want to have to do all this again. So they decided, after a lot of meetings, to make a new setting. For Vampire, this became Vampire the Requiem, which itself is fairly similar to Masquerade. The core concepts are close enough, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But there's some real uh, interesting innovations that they made. For example, 
they came out with the World of Darkness core rulebook, which gives you the rules to play mortals. This is very good because a lot of Chronicles now, you begin as a mortal and you have the full rules for that. And then later on down the line, you become one of the supernatural creatures, uh, be it vampire, Promethean, mage, what have you. And since all the books now kind of build off of the same core rules, it's easy to have those mixed groups if you want uh, to have a crossover kind of game, which you really couldn't do in the old world of darkness. I don't think Changeling... No, Changeling did have aggravated damage. Some games didn't have, like, aggravated, let's say. Yeah, Orpheus didn't. Others yeah. would have... They might not have lethal. There's there's a lot of, like, strange differences. Ba- bashing only came in during Revised, I think, in many of the game lines. Mm. Yep, yep. They, or they'd um, change uh, which skills were available. So, like, Orpheus, because yep. it comes towards the end, got rid of dodge. You know, and that's now something that's incorporated into V20, is V20s, that dodge yeah. is rolled into athletics. Um, so yeah, there were tweaks like that. Between each of the, the games within Old World of Darkness, there were individual tweaks, whereas New World of Darkness unifies the map there very hard. You've got a strong baseline, yeah. And another reason that um, to, to, to kind of pick up on what you mentioned about stale products, they had a fairly continuous development cycle over 13 years with very little uh, reproduction of the same book. You did have it a couple of times. You know, you had Book of the Worm, first and second edition. You had Book of Madness, first and second edition. Um, but for the most part, uh, they were they were producing new content, ideally with each, with each separate release, um, even though the games went through what amount to three separate editions. Um, so eventually, over you know, after a dozen, 13 years in the case of Vampire, uh, you are going to start to run out of fresh topics. And, you know, that became a little bit more apparent toward the end. But a, a flip side of this is that if you're a new designer coming on on board, or if you are, you know, maybe you you were working on the Werewolf line and you've been assigned to work on the on the Mage line or the Vampire line, all of a sudden you've got a decade plus of information uh, to take on board, um, and there is a you know there's a lot of homework to do there, um, and that's in no small part due to the the meta plot. Uh, centric nature of Old World of Darkness, the interlinked aspect of the of you know one game line had its own continuing story, and in some cases, many cases I suppose, it crossed over with other game lines. So you're not just looking at what were the last dozen years of Vampire like. You've kind of got to see, you know you've got to go and learn about Samuel Hate and uh, you know, Seventh Generation and uh, <laughs> and uh, the, you know the Croatan and all those guys. Um, so with New World of Darkness, that's that's been that's more or less removed. The idea of an ongoing meta plot is not really as uh, as prevalent. Um, the, the rules, and we'll come onto this in a minute, the books are more toolkitty. So you can come on board as a, as, you know, as a, a new designer or developer and not have to know what was written in the, uh, you know, the Succubus Club first edition back in 1992 or whenever it was. Old World of Darkness's uh, meta plot was uh, very much focused around the millennial fever, that fear that at the turn of the millennium and just after you know we were going to have some form of apocalypse and you know we'd got there and gone beyond in you know in real life and so it's very hard to to maintain that feel when in real life we've gone past that and also just keep perpetuating that the end is coming and the end is coming and keep putting up signposts like two miles to the end is coming and then you're like one mile from the end is coming and then it's still Half one mile. mile to the end <laughs> is coming and you're like going, I'm sure we've passed that signpost like you know ages ago surely the end <laughs> is somewhere um, and it goes and, and to say they, they went away from that uh, again it's reflected in possibly the differences uh, between how 
how uh, old vampire is this gothic punk and how new vampire is this modern gothic and that's something that we picked up on the last episode I think it was the last episode yeah with gothic storytelling and what that really entails so yeah they had to break away from the old and they really had to stop pressing the reset button on each edition and it's interesting that that you know pre-millennial tension thing uh if you go right back to the early vampire rule books and the first mage rule books and uh, i'm not sure we're off to a degree it's not in there uh, mm. Gehenna barely gets a mention in uh, in the Vampire the Masquerade yep. first edition, yep. and it's not really an element in in most of the first edition versions of the Old World of Darkness books. But as the millennium got closer, uh, it starts to crop up more and more and more and more, and becomes worked into the game line. Uh, and so while I, while it's not fair to say that you know Old World of Darkness had that in it from the from the get go, uh, as it got toward the end of its line, it became a, a predominating theme of uh, of the game line, sure. And you can't really avoid it, you know. You to well, to put it bluntly, you got to shit off or get off the pot. And um, well, they, they they definitely did, or they did both, in fact. You know. <laughs> the last point I wanted to bring up about the New World of Darkness is just simply how there's a lot less certainty in the world. Uh, with with the old world, everything was statted out, every kind of supernatural creature was uh was written up somewhere um you know you had like so many fey creatures and changeling and you had books like blood dims tides which i've heard is great it is it's very good yeah but that covers like all the uh the sea monsters and all that so what they did with the new world of darkness is they had a very toolbox nature to the source books so there's a lot of different ideas that you could pick and choose uh nothing was really exact or completely written out a lot of the uh the creatures that they present uh themselves are just not fully explained so that gives you this this more unknown kind of a cryptozoology uh mm, scenario definitely. going on yeah um i mean that's best exemplified in like one of the early um one of the earliest uh, supplements um the new world of darkness with um antagonists which gives you make your own zombies and so your reasons for why zombies exist can differ and what powers they have um and this is again picked up in in like the night horrors series for um a vampire where it shows different types of vampires which have have and don't have similarities to the kindred and yeah, cool. how their rules interact. So they they may or may not have blood potency, or they may or may not you know feed on blood or life force in the same way. And uh, more recently, in uh, Glimpses of the Unknown, which was a which is a PDF which I just read, which is the um, lots of plot hooks and storyteller ideas, and some new rules for all of the game lines, in, uh, including Innocence and Mirrors, for New Order Dance. There's a set a portion which reinforces. Uh, it's just it's a simple sidebar, but it reinforces that 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 any creature that does not fall into one of their splats is a or or into the spirit rules or into the ghost rules is an outsider. So they don't have to conform to any of the rules they've got in there, other than it has some stats which interact with the other things, so like you know strength and all the p- typical stats if you want it to interact but you know they don't have to fit into the rules of it has to have blood potency or it has to have um azoth for example because they they make a point of how um there's a creature in the antagonist known as um the doll i think it's called and um how it looks like a promethean it's very similar in the way it works it's not a promethean so again 
it goes back to there is no certainty. There is this everything's mysterious, and you can add mystery into the game quite easily. So, yeah, I really like that about New World of Darkness. It's a huge plus in the, of the system of uh, the New World of Darkness setting. Um, the, the lack of need for ca- for categorization. Um, well, for all the reasons you just you just given in Old World of Darkness, it happened a little bit that there were a few things that weren't categorized, but for the most part. It's either it's a bane or it's a weaver spirit or it's some kind of umbrood or it's you know it's a ghoul or what have you, um, and many many things the majority of things were like you say slotted into categories. I think early in the in the old world of darkness game line they didn't do this so much. For example, the werewolves that are the lupines that are listed as antagonists in the vampire core book don't necessarily have to conform to being like the guru, but as the game lines progressed, yeah, this this cross over categorization. Uh, was you know was the order of the day, and I think the new world of darkness breaking away from that um, is a uh, is a massive plus. And and secondly, the the toolbox nature, um, content aside, as far as the as as far as the methodology goes, I think this is their number one the number one best thing about new world of darkness is that they're upfront and they call it out right from the word go. Toolbox, toolbox, toolbox. Take and pick and choose what you want. Um, you know, and a lot of storytellers, old world of darkness storytellers, would do this anyway. And especially if you've been running it for a few years, you decide, well, maybe I don't want technology in this game. Or maybe my vampires are going to be like this, and I'm going to give them angst like raids have, and to give them a certain kind of, you know, emotive element to them. Um, but it was never called out. It was never, you know, or should I say, never, rarely explicitly upfront said, pick and choose, pick and choose. Um, and New World of Darkness has uh, has got it right from the from the word go in that regard, making it uh, making it clear. A point I was going to bring up about toolbox, and this is uh, something I've heard in discussion, is that some people claim would say that world of, new world of darkness toolbox isn't really a true toolbox. Toolbox, they you can compare it that they go, we want all the rules to be able to do anything, and then we can dress it up how we want. That's a true toolbox. But I think I think the best way to describe uh, the the new world of darkness toolbox approach is that each book is a is an island so you don't need to look between you don't need to cross reference between books for yeah. a particular rule so if they bring out a vampire book with npcs they will typically only have disciplines from the core book because you you don't yes. want to have to get then go and buy this and that and that to have all the rules for it and also some people claim that it's not a true tool book because you, you get given a book, it tells you how to run ghouls or it tells you how to do something different with mage, but you're, you're, it's not a true toolbox because you're, it, it, it presents you options, but those options are limited. And I, I often think that people miss that. A game is often writers can't get, don't want to give you that because they could do give you complete openness, and but it would lose some of the feel of the game um, and Absolutely. you would lose the experience of the game they're trying to, to give you. And this sometimes goes back to the idea that you know the writers aren't telling you how to play your game, but they're suggesting the best way with the rules they've given you because that's a particular experience they're giving you. And you know, and that's why you have other books like the mirror, you know, the mirrors books and time period books they've brought out for like mage and and vampires, so they can give you a slightly different different experience with the same rule sets. I don't think there's anything wrong with having those limitations. Um, no, for exactly I'm... the reason for exactly the reason that you say. You know that um, 
you want to, you want to create a certain theme, a certain mood, and a certain type of game, and so you write your rules and your setting to do that. You know, I, I agree with you that it's it's not necessarily uh, uh, it shouldn't be the case that well, no, we have to be able to model any kind of game that we want with this set of rules or any kind of horror game. Um, the the world of darkness, yeah, we've they've got a certain kind of thing they want to do, and that's what they're gonna that's what they're gonna do, and you can see that. Um, if you look at you know quote unquote indie games, um, they take it right to the to the level of this game is about this one thing, and this one thing only. You are going to play Igor, the servant of the master, you know, or you are going to play um, a space marine uh, where your stats are killing things and everything else. You know, yeah, <laughs> so it's three sixteen. There's only two stats in the game, uh, and so and they work. I don't think, I think for World of Darkness, I think it's the right move to limit your boundaries. Otherwise, it's just, well, it's just messy and unfocused, isn't it? And that's really a good segue, Mark, over to the kind of mechanical differences. So basically, mm. the new system is pretty much like the old system. When you have a challenge of some sort, you combine a skill plus an attribute, or actually, I remember the first time I was reading the World of Darkness core book, I was really surprised about combining just two skills and you just count up the number of dots, that's how many dice you roll, and it now has a fixed difficulty of eight or higher for a success. And if you have yeah. more and more success, bam, there you go. You succeed at the task. Yeah, I mean, that represents a natural progression that they've had through many of their games. See, they kind of were introducing that from, say, uh, Adventure and uh, the Trinity, you know, the Trinity setting, mm-hmm. and then in Exalted, that's, that's essentially you know, roll seven or more with um you, you double your and if you roll a ten it counts as double successes and you know in new order darkness you get tens can explode so you get to do roll again so it represents a natural progression of how they think their dice pools work um and i think one of the the, the main things about what discriminates new order darkness rule system from old order darkness is combat how it's streamlined um yeah, they, they, you don't roll to hit and roll to defend. You now have some static values in there. And that's really nice. It just it speeds up so much. I mean, it makes it maybe a bit more abstract and sometimes a bit more questionable about what you're really rolling. But at the end of the day, does it really matter? I would say no. Are you, are you, is your character you know, shit scared and running for the life? Yeah, that matters. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, the streamlined combat thing was was uh, a really interesting innovation, um, and was uh, one of the first things that I started using in my old World of Darkness games. We, I think, I th- even think I, we shared the house rules about that way back in episode four or five or something. If I, I can't remember which one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, you can do it in Old World of Darkness too by looking at the probabilities uh, and you know having dice cancel each other out. Um, and it, it does, you know, it does make it uh, less granular, more broad strokes. Um, you know, both old and new. But yeah, unless you're playing a, a game that is really about lots of combat and you want blow-by-blow blow, um, representations of what's happening, no, a bit of broad strokes is good. I think it, uh, and, if it and for the most part, for the, the, the best thing about it, if it speeds it up, brilliant. Because one of the worst things about role-playing games in general is the part of the game that you want to be cranking up the pace, you know, combat, is often the part where the pace just slows right down while you just start rolling loads and loads of them dice. I can speak from experience. My wife is not, uh, doesn't enjoy doing the number crunching for combat, and she will happily look at her, her sheet and then will go, oh, that's what I need and roll it for a vampire character for Requiem, and she's quite happy with that. And right now, playing Exalted, no, 
and that's why we have we use some custom sheets that basically explain all the derived stats. So yeah. it tells you what all the static values are for exalted. But that's still it's a lot it's a longer process and you know, you only have to torture and you know what she prefers playing. It's the one where she only yeah. has to roll once. Um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, the, as, as a rule that I could import back into Old World of Darkness games, the streamlined combat element, and I don't use quite the same system as New World, but it really saved um, some an Old World of Darkness campaign for me. I was running a Dark Ages game where with mages and vampires, uh, you know, who'd gotten to pretty high levels of dice, and to have a dice pool that was in double figures, you know, 12, 13 dice was not unusual. Uh, and when that's happening in combat, I was, I was just like, oh, God, please, somebody just put out my eyes. This is awful. Um, and then, you know, figuring out a bit of a forehead slapping moment that, oh, I can actually just strip this right down here. And it, it saved the game. You know, no two ways about it. Uh, so, yeah, you know, big thumbs up there for me. Cool. And uh, some of the other things, innovations, if you will, of the New World of Darkness system is, for example, virtue and vice. So in the old world, you had nature and demeanor, which I'm pretty... I'll say I'm ambivalent. Um, they're very interesting storytelling, uh, storyteller tools, yeah. And they're they're good for giving you uh, kind of an idea, a stereotype to work off of. But Virtue and Vice mm. uh, definitely seems like they grabbed that from uh, the the story games that you see, a lot of the indie games, like uh, maybe Burning Wheel, mm. where you, you have this kind of like broad archetype, if you will, uh, that you play off of. For example, you might have the virtue of, of hope. So you have a very like, optimistic and positive character. And the vice could be something like greed. So they just like take things from others. And there's yeah. also some mechanical uh, kickback from that, where if you follow your your vice, you can kind of quickly like grab another uh, willpower from that. If you play in character, yeah. your, your storyteller might give you something, which they kind of had with nature and demeanor, but I think it's just a lot more pronounced, and it's yeah. a lot easier for the for the players to get into their characters that way. Also, if you role play with um, if you role play to your virtue for a scene, you get all your willpower back. So yeah. the nice thing about that um, is it it shows you that. It's kind of like which is easier, the light side of the force or the dark side of the force. Yeah. And cool. you know, if you want, if you need that willpower back quickly, and you you're not gonna sh and you, you're not bothered by you know doing something horrible like you know kicking the hobo because he's in your way, then uh, and because you want the money off him to uh, pay off someone, then fine, you know, because you just need that. Oh, basically, or or the best the best example of that is. For, for say a vampire, are you going to go with a quick fix, or are you going to and, and feed on someone, uh, or are you going to, you know, choose the higher road? And I, I really like that because it's, um, it emphasises just how easy it is to go into a downward spiral. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Personally, I, I, I do prefer nature and demeanour, uh, but I, what I do like about the virtue and the vice is this, you know, uh, different grades of willpower uh, recovery. Mm -hmm. um, so I house-ruled that right in, straight away into my old World of Darkness games with the strength and weakness elements of each, of each nature and demeanour as a strength and a weakness. And I thought, right, strength will get you more willpower, weakness will get you a quick hit right away. So yeah, it's a, it's a good innovation, and uh, um, I think it, well, like you say, the light side and the dark side, whether you use nature and demeanour, um, which I think were reintroduced into New World of Darkness in Mirrors, was it? They had them in there. Or whether you use Virtue and Vice, um, that you know, high road, low road uh, moral choice is, is a, a real strength of the game system. 
They have something like natures and demeanors in, I want to say, Dance Macabre? Is that right? Yeah. Well, if, well, one of them they have in there, again, is kind of like uh, useful archetypes to help, you know, help as a tool for a, for a player to, to figure out how they're going to role play. Um, yeah. I can't remember if it was Mirrors or Dance Macabre. It was one of those kind of, yeah. um, you know, new options books. I forget which one. And real briefly, uh, the other big mechanical innovation i guess that's the uh the word or phrase of the episode uh is backgrounds and merits have now been put under the the aegis of simply merits uh mm. so it's going to contain for vampire your eat food merit and uh basic things like contacts and allies and those have either a specific dot cost or a range maybe like one to five for example for uh for contacts and they also took flaws and made them into a story-enhancing element. Thank God, yeah. <laughs> that was maybe one of the greatest things they did because for just changing the way that system worked because it really stops min-maxing. Because that was one of the things you could do. It was like, I want an extra dot here, so I'm going to take as many flaws as possible without really having a proper reason for them, uh, just so I can pump all my dots up. And Addiction now, to caffeine, yeah. Yeah, and now if you want a flaw, oh yeah, have it. But the only bonus you're going to get is if you roleplay to it, and you roleplay in such a way that it's a hindrance to you, yet you make the most of it, then you're going to get experience points. And yeah. that's how it should be. That's brilliant. Yeah. And you could see them moving toward this with the adversarial backgrounds in uh, yes. All the Darks toward the end, um, where backgrounds and merits alliance between them you know they start to blur like you say it becomes a range of how many points you want to get for this um so yeah and i think an interesting and a logical move to to just merge them because i mean i think in, in old world of darkness they cost the same anyway so mm. you know, there was mm-hmm. nothing really to, to to separate them out and just real briefly as well uh the new world of darkness has its own line of books uh which the old world kind of had you had such gems as midnight circus and blood dim tides that we mentioned earlier in the episode gypsies oh, gypsies. gypsies yeah <laughs> mafia yeah, i think that was a really good one yeah uh, hong kong that's cool hunter x yeah. but in the new world uh, combat sorry they have these new source books which are all freaking awesome. They're all freaking awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they all apply mm-hmm. to the other games. And they really set this baseline atmosphere that you can use in Vampire, Promethean, Geist, all of them. So it's it's great. And uh, it provides, in some cases, new powers, antagonists. Um, and instead of, you know, in Old World, you had something like Destiny's Price. So you had your one gritty source book for Mage. And then you might have uh, Time of Thin Blood for Vampire, which is kind of a gritty source book for Vampire. And in this case, they kind of just merge those all together into a new World of Darkness source book, one of the blue books, if you will. Exactly. Um, it's good. like a, a good example of that. Well, maybe it's a better example and shows where they were, as again, how the blue books have evolved. Um, book of Spirits. Um, initially, there was uh, they brought out Werewolf, which introduced spirits. And the again, that's one of the unifying things of, of New World of Darkness, is the rules for ghosts and the rules for spirits. They're the same across the board. So those antagonists operate the same for any other game you, you run. So you see that with uh, the Promethean and their Quashillum, which are another type of spirit. But So um, in Werewolf, they had Predators, which is a book of more spirits. They had in Mage, they had their form of spirits, and they brought out um, Summoners. Harvest, 
Uh, they've got that. they've got stuff in some in night horrors as well, but some of is again spirits in astral realms rather than in the uh, rather than in the shadow. And then for the the blue book is Book of Spirits, and that opened it up to everything. So you also introduced um, they had like a bloodline for vampires that had a discipline that allowed them to interact with spirits. And again, to show the mystery element um, in the book, uh, the Covenant book for Vampire uh, Circle of the Crone, it gave you three ways that the crone uh, interacted with spirits that they everything they had was a pack of lies and didn't actually work or they partially knew the truth or they completely knew the truth so every time you could play vampire with them you could change how well they interacted with spirits and you know it just meant all other books you could just dip into and pick what you needed and pop it into another game so yeah the blue books are just all great I think I going back to the way they didn't pigeonhole everything, they also introduced um, in uh, the book Second Sight, which allows you to do, for a mortals game, introduces things like psychic powers and develops more upon uh, cults and, and kind of cthuloid kind of creatures and how they can give strange uh, mutations and powers to their mortal cult members and it, again it reintroduces the idea of hedge wizardry which was something that old world Darkness had but again it was trying to get the idea that not all magic is awakened magic there is other magic that works and the, operates the, the its own system. rules the, the head, yeah. head wizard system in that book is fantastic it's really, yeah. really good well i mean you know almost to the point of where you could say you know if mage the awakening is too much to get your head around play this play that yeah it's really very good other than that, uh, we did ask on Facebook for some suggestions on what we should discuss for the New World of Darkness, and a lot of people uh, really liked the uh, the tiered storytelling system. Now, this first came out in Hunter the Vigil, and has kind of expanded to the other game lines. Uh, specifically, with Vampire the Requiem, we had uh, the Dance Macabre source book not yeah. too long ago. And, and uh, we also have it in the tiers in Geist, uh, where mm-hmm. Geist really shows how you can you can build uh, you can build these mythologies which start off at uh, tier one, so kind of crew level, and they slowly grow as you gain more followers. So, yeah, tiers are good. Yep. And what the tiers are, it basically separates your gameplay types. So you have like low powered, uh, medium powered, and high powered. So in Hunter, you had the the cells, which is just a couple people. Yeah, the conspiracies were hundreds, and then uh, in between those was compacts, which was just like a dozen hunters and the people supporting them. Why didn't developers think of this before? What it does is it gives different rules for each level of gameplay. So not only do you have your, your storytelling feel, but you also have the game mechanics reflect that, uh, which yeah. is just great. I'm pretty sure, unless I'm mistaken, it first cropped up in Unknown Armies, actually. Um, which is a fantastic horror game. Uh, not it's not White Wolf, but it's very 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 good. Um, and in there, they they divided it between you know your individual guys dealing with the occult, you know the occult underground on the street corners, and the guy at the back of uh, J C Penny who'll uh, tell you your future if you give him a lemon and that kind of you know weird stuff. Um, to 
conspiracies that that, that span uh, districts and neighborhoods and countries right the way up to this kind of you know cosmic world spanning uh, global apocalypse kind of thing um and so the tier system that appears in, in World of Darkness is almost a direct uh, lift out of that. And, and why not? Because uh, it worked really well in Unknown Armies. It's great to see it applied to the World of Darkness. Um, so, yeah, very cool. Very cool indeed. So just to keep things rolling, um, we're going to start off with the first rapid fire on Vampire the Requiem. This comes from uh, Chris, actually. Yeah. Uh, back, <laughs> before, ago. back before he was a host. uh talking into his uh, cell phone to record. So uh, it'll be interesting (laughs) to see how he's progressed from there. Uh, So why don't we uh, give this a listen and uh, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Chris Hangley for the Darker Days radio podcast. Um, And we're covering rapid fire overviews of the World of Darkness games. I'm going to focus on Vampire the Requiem, which is from the new World of Darkness line. So briefly, an overview of what you can do in Vampire, uh, what kind of stories you can tell, what it's really trying to emulate. Vampires appear in various forms of books, films, and TV. And they're different in all these depictions. You have the beautiful, immortal, lonely vampires in the works of Anne Rice, in Dracula, and also within the associated films. You also have the bestial savagery of vampires as depicted in films like Blade, Near Dark, and 30 Days of Night. You also have the aloofness and sensual nature of vampires as seen in The Hunger. And you also have the creeping dread of vampires also seen in 30 Days of Night, the film Nosferatu, and the film Nightwatch, which has a few vampires in that. Now, vampires also have complex society in, in Requiem, and we can get an idea for what this would be like by looking at uh, TV series and films. Uh, good TV for this is maybe uh, the Blade TV series, um, the Moonlight TV series, and you really get a sense for how, as immortal beings gather together, and these the ageless beings, um, they have complex uh, collectives that build up over time, and with that comes their Machiavellian games. So. Vampires. They were their predators that were once human. They've been changed. Uh, they were killed and embraced by their sire by consuming the blood of a vampire. And they are now immortal and suffer from uh, the hunger for blood. They burn in sunlight and can be staked. Though staking does not destroy them, it more immobilizes them and puts them into a comatose state. Now, as they have a hunger for blood, and this manifests as uh, what they call the beast, the thing that drives them to feed upon mortals. And this obviously means that they compete with other vampires. They are predators, and there are only so many people to feed upon. And they must feed in safety as well, so they do not bring hunters after them. And so vampires maintain something called the masquerade. Vampires are also, as I said, immortal beings, and this brings with it issues. There is the weight of history. Uh, They can suffer from age-long feuds with other vampires, and they also have to deal with the tragic consequences of the loss of mortal companions and family. All of this means that vampires become lonely, bored, 
and paranoid creatures, and this affects how their society works. Now, the vampires in Vampire the Requiem are not all the same. You have clans. There are particular bloodlines of vampires with particular abilities. There are certain themes associated with them. So, for instance, Clan Deva, they are sensual and emotional, graceful vampires. Clan Gangrel, savage predators with the ability to shapeshift into animals. Uh, Clan Mechit, secretive, inquiring, shadowy beings, fearing bright lights and uh, capable of disappearing from sight. Clan Nosferatu, horrific, vile, fearsome beings. Some are monstrous physically, some just have an aura of terror about them. And Clan Ventru, commanding, uh, aloof uh, vampires with the ability to command the minds of mortals and animals, and are slightly unhinged. Now, in Vampire, their society, as I said, is built around the paranoia, loneliness, and boredom that they have. But also there are other things that influence vampiric society. These really man these these ideas uh, that vampires can have, these collectors, really manifest as their covenants. These covenants have particular themes and political and philosophical and religious concepts associated with them. So for instance the Carthians are a group of vampires who focus on the freedom from the old power structures. They are rebellious and want to emulate modern society, be that democracy or even fascism. There is the Circle of Crone, cults of vampires venerating a variety of pagan gods, believing that they are born from the gods who are, out, who are cast out by the other gods for being vile creatures. And the Circle of Crone has the ability to command uh, blood magic known as Kruak. They understand that they are ostracized from the cycle of life, and so they spend time understanding what that means. There is the Invictus, lords of old. They are feudal lords. They value a meritocracy. They rule with an iron fist. And they have a very particular power structure. There is the Lancaster Sanctum, who believe in God. They know they are cursed by God, and in a way they are divine beings. They are wolves amongst the flock of sheep, reminding mortals of their place. And in some respects, they consider themselves sin eaters, take upon, taking upon themselves the sin of, sins of mortals. And then there is the Ordo Dracul, who are occultists, alchemists, and experimenters, who, through the teachings of, Ordo, of, um, of Dracula, the founder of the Ordo Dracul, um, they seek to overcome the limits of their curse, their vampiric nature. Now, vampires also have powers at their disposal. Certain clans find it easier to learn certain abilities. These abilities are quite varied. They're the simple, obvious ones, maybe, such as the inhuman speed, strength, and resilience of vampires. But then there's some more interesting ones, like the ability to command minds of humans, to command the minds of animals, to be able to read and sense thoughts, to hide in plain sight, to shapeshift and take the form of other animals, or simply to cause absolute terror. Now, with all of this, you can tell 
quite a range of stories in a Vampire the Requiem game. You can have the endless power struggles between the covenants of, of vampires within a city. You have the paranoia of being hunted by those who would like to destroy vampires. And then there is the more personal horror of having to deal with what it means to be a vampire, to feed on humans, to put friend, mortal friends in danger, and to obviously have to overcome the beast, the very thing that drives you to feed on mortals. And then there is the unspeakable ancient evils that vampires can come into contact with, um, such as groups called like Seven and Belal's Brood, or spirits such as the Strix, and those are further uh, expanded upon in other supplements to the game. So that's Vampire, really, or Vampire the Requiem, to be more precise. It's many things, and it ultimately allows you to play a very modern Gothic tale, where Gothic in this sense means personal horror and tragedy something which is really at the core of what it means to be a vampire. So guys, I have to uh, have to come clean about Vampire the Requiem because I started playing White Wolf games back in 2004 and on that Gen Con weekend when, when Vampire the Requiem came out, that's when I bought Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> that's the world's worst timing <laughs> yep yep wow but i've got to say it's really grown on me uh you know i didn't i had some reservations about it when requiem first came out because they were so similar but now that's why i like it it's it's uh it starts off at the same base point but it goes off in a totally different direction. Uh, instead of having all those punk elements, you have a lot of the uh, the gothic politicking. And without those sort of... Uh, in Vampire the Masquerade, you had a lot of these like really over-the-top magical uh, organizations, such as the Tal Mahara or the uh, the Tremere themselves, which mm. you you have some of that in Requiem, but it just seems a lot more reasonable, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah. I think because I I started off playing uh, Vampire the Masquerade back in like what ninety six, so kind of I think around about that time also Angel had just started. So I know my initial Vampire the Masquerade game was a bit San Francisco and riffed off Angel because it was on there and was quite uh, a bit of inspiration for us, but. Um, but when I picked up Requiem, it just felt really like a, a, a completely fresh, really. Um, yeah. The way it breaks up the politics um, and just the feel of it is not, oh my god, the end's coming, let's go insane, everything's completely turned up to 11. Um, you know, Requiem, you can really, you can, you can play at, at any kind of level of intensity and... Um, and it just feels a bit closer to home in some respects. I don't know. There's just it's it's more about the NUI of being a vampire uh, rather than just the you know just the gothic punk element. So yeah, Vampire the Requiem is really close to my heart. <laughs> it's a great game. I found Vampire the Requiem to be the, the 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 closest thing to Vampire the Masquerade First Edition since 
Vampire the Masquerade first edition. Mm. You know, <laughs> I, if, if you take it right back to that old soft cover first edition book and you kind of leave through that, uh, the the feeling that comes off the pages there is they managed to capture that feel again very early on with uh, with Requiem. Um, yeah, and Requiem has has developed in some astonishingly innovative directions, but at its heart, it remains a very very strong vampire game. Um, and you know, even even mechanics like Predator's Taint, which sometimes don't always work to support f- fun gameplay, and nevertheless manage to capture uh, a feel that that you haven't had in the game for a long time. Um, and as as far as innovations go, as I've said before, um, the uh, the Covenant element uh, I think is fantastic. One of the things I like the most about uh, Masquerade were the sects. Um, you know, whether whether they're over the top and, and and crazy or not, the fact that you could have Camarilla and Sabbat and the Anarchs and the Black Hand and what have you. you know, I, I, the more of those, the better. So seeing a bunch of those in in Requiem, I think is is really good. And they're and they're all. Well, they're, they're different, you know. They're not just, here's another group of guys who are secretly controlling the world. They've actually got their own different elements to them. Um, and I found that very, very uh, uh, very refreshing. And the other element that I thought was very, very strong was uh, blood potency. Um, divorcing Ooh, yeah. that. Yeah, you know, so it's not like, oh, well, I can count how far back my uh, ancestry goes. Uh, I like the idea of a vampire being able to recite his lineage, going, you know, I'm Bob child of Jim, child of Frank, child of, you know, um, Absimiliard or whatever. Um, but I also like the idea that there's that there's blurriness in there. So you don't really know, in fact, how far back it goes. And at a certain point, it all disappears into the mists. And I think blood potency is a well, great way of, of capturing that. Well, blood potency is, is directly tied to the Fog of Ages, which they introduced. And yeah. one of the things that I love about that is vampires have... First of all, the, the, because of the fog of ages, their, their memories of the past become blurred in such a way that they can, that people that were enemies, they don't remember where they're enemies. So when they wake yeah. up 100 years later, they go, why did I hate you? Are we still fighting? And so that yeah. all becomes quite crazy in its own right. But also, it means the vampires aren't too sure of their own origin. And as much as it was great, you know, the whole linking vampires and masquerade to, to Cain and the first the first murderer and and uh his and Kane's you know journey into the land of nod um bra- it it just means that vampire the requiem games not every requiem game is going to be the same because it's up to you to say what's true and what's not what is that origin if you even bother to go as far as describing what that origin is and it puts the mystery back in there so it even means it doesn't matter how many bloody books your players have read they will have no clue of to your history and that's reflected in all the source books they've done for for requiem you know with like their historical kind of uh uh moments when they've done like uh ancient mysteries where they go Here's a here's a cool point in history where this could have happened. Um, so yeah, I really love I love how it breaks up. It makes it makes the history of the vampires more dynamic, really, and open for you to play. I love the Kane idea, uh, but I love it best as a myth. Um, I think it yeah. works best as a, as, as a as something the vampires say about themselves. Uh, and I liked, I, in my Masquerade games, I enjoyed coming up with, well, maybe it was Kane, maybe it was Lilith, maybe it was Kupala, um, you know, maybe it was alien astronauts, you know, whatever. Um, and to see that, again, co- you know, up front called out in Requiem, here you go, here's a bunch of different things, and they all 
they all disagree with each other. Brilliant, because you know that's that's how the world is anyway. Uh, and seeing that represented in uh, in the game, I thought was really cool. Um, and you know, blood potency and generation, you you can you can link them. You know, if you want if you're an old world of darkness player and you want to have blood potency, um, you can tie it to generation. I think we did a, sh- a feature on that many moons ago in the show. Um, so yeah, you know, it's it's a, it's a good rule. I think it can be used. I was going to bring up with the covenants as well. Uh, one of the nice things about the the use of covenants is they break away from the uh, the 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 obvious polarity in mass break like cities would either be not undergoing a siege or they generally had a siege against yeah. from the other <laughs> organizations whereas in requiem you could go this city is just controlled by the invictus no other bastards here don't worry about it or you have uh, a system where they're all represented and they've got primogen council and there's some prince there or or anything in between, where there are three covenants, two covenants, one, all of them, or seven even. Or you could even get crazier, and this is where the covenant systems really, I, I feel, even, again, adds to the mystery. Not all Carthians are going to agree with each other. So if you're a vampire and say you're in London, and then you go to Manchester, go, hey, I'm a Carthian, then I'll just go, ah, oh, brother. It's like they could have completely different political leanings. And you can you can really take advantage of that by having well you could have the the circle of crony presidents in a city and they all have different cults and they're all warring between themselves yet all the other covenants go we don't care about the difference between them we just call them the circle of the crone because it's easier to deal with them as a group so I really like that that um, that many of the names of the covenants is just really a placeholder for a particular group particular groups of ideas. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So, guys, what about the bloodlines? I mean, that's like ten pages in the Requiem Core book, which has spawned three full source books, three and three million bloodlines, yeah. all these yeah. other bloodlines throughout the place. And I think they're really cool simply because they're completely optional. You can use them uh, to to enhance your game, to give additional powers to NPCs or your players, and I think that. Uh, some of these bloodlines have really global spanning agendas, which can be really good if you want to crank your chronicle up from tier two up to tier three. Uh, I can give you a lot of options that way. Yeah, I like them. I mean, you know, I, I know there's been criticism of, oh, well, there's too many bloodlines in the game. But, you know, for me, coming from a masquerade perspective, I'm just like, well, masquerade had 500 clans, you know, so having... Um, you know, well, whatever the number was. So having a whole bunch of different bloodlines to me just kind of feels natural, and I, I like what it says about the about the vampiric condition, um, that it's mutable and that it's not predictable, and you don't know who that guy is over the, you know who's setting off your predator's taint. You don't really know exactly what it's going to be. You know, sure he may be one of the the five clans or one of the uh, one of the covenants, but he may also be some you know really kooky backwards bloodline that you've never heard of, and he's going to. You know, he's going to have his discipline that eats your face come out of nowhere. And I, I think that really adds to the game's uh, elements of mystery and uh, and horror and unknown. Um, and also from a, from a uh, I guess, a design point of view, uh, customers like new stuff. So uh, it's, a, it's a, you know, a, a way to bring new stuff into your products uh, without too much um, head scratching. So, yeah, it's good. I was initially kind of, when the first Bloodline books came out, I was kind of a bit didn't really enjoy them as much because it wasn't I wanted more setting rather than things that could be open for abuse because sometimes I can see certain bloodlines are a bit over the top but I think there are some really good ones out there and fortunately 
you can actually just download a particular bloodline you want to use. They've done that with the uh, PDFs, they've broken them up, which was a good move by uh, White Wolf there. Um, and yeah, again, you've got the you've got properly detailed rules on how to between yourself and your storyteller. You can you can go about making your own bloodlines, and that's great. And the fact that there's loads out there, you've got more than enough examples to throw together your um, uh, whatever you like, really. Yeah, having the detailed rules is a big help. It's the same in Mage the Awakening with the legacies. They actually set oh, out, yeah. Here, here's how you build a legacy. Uh, and I th- that's just such a godsend for a storyteller. You know, you can really see what the nuts and bolts are supposed to look like and not kind of worry too much about, you know, going a bit creative and destroying your game. All right, guys, is that it for Vampire the Requiem? Yeah, yeah I think that's I guess we should. pretty good. Cool. Well, let's move on over to Werewolf the Forsaken, the storytelling game of Savage Fury. And uh, I'm going to present the rapid fire for this. Werewolf the Forsaken is a storytelling game exploring the dichotomy of man and beast, looking at a race of outcasts charged with patrolling the border between mortal and spirit realms. Players take the role of one of the Uratha, a werewolf within the tribes of the moon, a being neither fully human nor fully spirit, and thus rejected by both societies. The modern task of the Uratha is intertwined with their origin story, dating back to the prehistory of Pangaea. Father Wolf was the greatest hunter, and kept both the spirit world and the mortal world balanced and in check. The goddess Luna took him as a mate, and together they created a pack of eight wolves, the forefathers of the modern tribes. As the years wore on, Father Wolf grew weak and unable to lead as more and more spirits crept across the gauntlet. Five of Father Wolf's sons agreed that their father, the Pack Alpha, must be killed. In the ensuing battle, as Father Wolf was struck down, his howl severed the ties between mortal and spirit world, creating the scattered loci as the only bridges between worlds. The five forsaken wolves created the modern tribes. Werewolves are not typically born into a tribe, rather, as they take the Oath of the Moon and are inducted into Urathas society, they pick the tribe that best follows their ideals. Each tribe has a patron, one of the wolves sired by Luna and Father Wolf. And, like the spirits they deal with, Uratha have a restriction they must follow, called a ban. The first tribe is the Blood Talons, who follow Fenris, the destroyer wolf. They are the warrior sect of Uratha society, and have the ban to offer no surrender that they would not accept. Next are the Bone Shadows. Followers of Death Wolf, who seek audience with the disparate spirit realm factions. These occultists and shamans have the ban to pay each spirit in kind. While the Blood Talons and the Bone Shadows are tribes of direct action, the Hunters in Darkness have more subtle ideals. While charged with defending the Loci, many of Black Wolf's followers are assassins and stalkers. Their ban is to let no sacred space in their territory be violated. In opposition to the Bone Shadows, the Iron Masters tribe tends to cleave closer to humanity, 
following technology and claiming city territory. The followers of Red Wolf must honor their territory in all things. Finally, the Stormlords seek to lead the Uratha by noble example. Over the ages, these Uratha have become almost aristocrats among their kind, and have kept the band to allow no one to witness or tend their weakness. Diametrically opposed to the Forsaken are three pure tribes descended from the wolves that did not attack their father. Over the ages, these werewolves have become twisted and perverse, meeting with each other and consorting with unseemly spirits. The fire-touched, predator kings and ivory claws tribes all venerate the deceased Father Wolf and have fallen out of favor with their mother, Luna. The pure aggressively battle against the Forsaken and actively seek to corrupt and convert. What particularly separates the Forsaken from the pure is their favor with Luna. While she cursed all of her offspring with a weakness to silver, she forgave the tribes of the moon when they took up their father's duty. While they still retain the silver weakness, the Forsaken have been granted Luna's auspices, a role and set of abilities based on the Urathus personality and corresponding to the moon phase in which they first changed. The auspices themselves are the Rahu warriors, the Kahela seers, the Elodoth judges, the Ithair occultists, and the Iraka trackers. To keep balance between realms, the Ratha form packs and defend territory. The werewolf is driven by an instinct to hunt, and their fast metabolism ensures they do so often. Defending this territory, packs will come into conflict with other Uratha, pure aggressors, humans disturbing the spirit world, the grotesque Oslu spider hosts, and the vile Beshilu rat hosts. To combat these threats, the Uratha must use fang, claw, spirit gifts, and of course, social graces. Werewolf Forsaken is a game with lots of storytelling potential. Some games have, perhaps focusing on pollution of a mortal world via the spirit, really lend themselves to a sandbox style of gameplay. That vampire, the Requiem for example, does not. Additionally, the game suits itself to epic wilderness wars where the Forsaken face their pure brethren, the casualties of which appear as random wolf victims. In the end, Werewolf forces storytellers to galvanize the players into action, whether with a mystery or instant antagonist. Storytellers that are a bit lost for ideas or settings will definitely want to check out the Werewolf SAS Adventures Parlor Games and Coyote Falls. So guys, that's all I got to say about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, um, how, so I've basically only run like maybe four sessions of Werewolf. But um, I really like it. It's I think it's a, it's got a definite um, feel to it. What kind of experience it's trying to get, which is this whole the pack is central and um, and really how they treat spirits in the setting. Um, because I think we went into this. Which episode did we talk about werewolf and um, what kind of story it's trying to present? The idea is of, of of balance and trying to keep that balance and how werewolves are really kind of these shepherds at the uh, border marches of it and um, 
Again, I love pretty much the entirety of the setting. Um, I don't have much problem with it. There's some really great bits in there, like the um, the the Maga spirits, uh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. the ones which eat eat each other. And then they had the the crazy um, some of the crazier ones at the back of Predators, like the um, the giant worm or the the, the crazy invisible one. Um, which give you a bit of crossover to some of the other games that had a suggestion how this yeah, yeah. worm spirit was linked to vampires. And then, uh, was it in the Night Horrors book, they reintroduced some of the creatures that were banished by the great... Uh, by um, by the uh, great... Uh, do I, I want to say great wolf, but he banished them to the moon. I forget the name, uh, yeah. Yeah, but there's some really sinister spirits in that, and, you know, I think the entire werewolf the Forsaken line is great, just to use for many of the other games as well. Yep. Well, yep. That, yeah, that's that's the big thing for me. I've not run any Forsaken. I ran a lot of Apocalypse, um, but I, I've read a bunch of the Forsaken books, um, primarily for you know the reasons you just mentioned. The antagonists that are in there are fantastic. Um, the ones that you know, I forget what they're called. They those kind of insect things that get inside you and drive you the, around like a car. The Aslu. The, uh, oh, the yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, horrible. The Aslu was really scary. Um, and the the rat spirits again. Yeah. Uh, awful, uh, just completely horrible things. Um, they added a, a great list of them, extra ones in uh, Predators as well. They had the crow spirits and locust spirits, and they're all these, you know, the splintered uh, host spirits. So, um, and those really big creepy kind of those big creepy Cthulhu-like entities, you know, these ancient mm. buried things. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the, the big strength of Forsaken is, is horror. You know, out-and-out, unmitigated horror. Uh, and Apocalypse managed this a little bit. Uh, well, I say a little bit. It managed it a fair deal. Um, but when it comes to actually, you know, pure naked horror game, I think Forsaken uh, pips it a little bit there. Um, it, it really brings home this idea that you're just, you are a monster. You're this really kind of, you know, conflicted, beast-ridden monster. Um, and you don't have anywhere else to go except your pack. Uh, and even your pack isn't safe um, because you're descended from people who did a really, really bad thing. And uh, those, you know, the, the werewolves, the pure, uh, who weren't involved, they're going to get you for it. Um, you know, the, the, the murder of Father Wolf, I think, is a fantastic element of the setting. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, as you said, uh, Chris, the depiction of spirits as these uh, monomaniacal uh, predatory entities that you're forever having to guard mm-hmm. against. Uh, I, you know, I've... I've had players ask me about an apocalypse game to, to run against you. And I'm thinking, right. And I'm mentally compiling a list of, well, here's all the cool stuff from Forsaken that I'm going to use. And, you know, the nature of spirits, uh, the nature of the pack, the father wolf myth, these are all things that I would plug into an apocalypse game in a heartbeat. I would say Forsaken next... Nature. I would say Forsaken right next to um, Promethean. The, the, both those games are like pure body horror. In, yeah. in, mm-hmm. But while Promethean is like the horror of of body horror, but along line alongside the horror of loneliness because you're this traveling monstrosity, Werewolf is like that having that body horror in, um, intrude upon your everyday life because you know you yeah, have exactly. your pact yeah. and you also more than likely because you're you're immortal and you 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 want to keep the that your your um what you are alive so you have people you care about and one of the things i um i think one of the characters that uh, a player of mine was running uh had one of his things was that he had a child 
with um, his estranged girlfriend. And so you have that entire horror where not only is he having to deal with these this spirit that is of a you know like a, a knife spirit riding a human and it's obsessed with knives and as as that uh, horror continues and as that spirit takes hold you know rusted blades start protruding from the skin of the person but they might go after his maybe not maybe not his child but maybe it starts killing children in the school where his child goes to and then you've got the wells going into that kind of scene and you can get really really personal with wells um, and that's bad because then a whale's just going to rage and kill people when he just doesn't want to hurt them. Flip out and kill everybody, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, body horror really sums it up very well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I kind of liked how in uh, in Forsaken, the pure kind of remind me of like this dark reflection of the apocalypse guru uh, in a lot of ways, especially yeah. the yeah, yeah. the ivory mm. claws um, being like the kind of aristocracy of the pure... In a lot of ways, it reminded me of the the Silver Fangs, especially because the Ivory Claws were all inbred. Uh, yeah. And, yep. and they kept making... Uh, when when two werewolves breed in in Forsaken, it creates this, like, demented spirit uh, child, which is yeah. very, very weird. It's like, it's like a pure spirit, uh, a pure wolf spirit that just mm-hmm. goes off and causes complete madness. I mean, it's really horrible reading the description. You have... The poor female werewolf has this whole pregnancy, and then what she have to show with for it? A whole load of blood and crazy wolf spirit. Mm-hmm. Yep. I wouldn't want to deal with that after they've been writhing about on the floor, giving birth to it, to then have to go off and find the bloody thing. Um, no, yeah. yeah. Right, let's, let's take Apocalypse's Metis and let's make it worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Idigam, that's what they're called. Yes, Idigam. The scary, scary things. I kind of always refer to them as like never born. They're kind of, they have yeah. that same kind of feel, um, yeah. which is why I use them in mage as well. <laughs> well, I was just, I was just thinking just now, I, this, I've just stuck one in my mage game uh, the other week. So, uh, <laughs> oh, right. Hey, <laughs> outstanding. Cool. Yeah. Uh, is that it for werewolf the forsaken? Yep. Big yeah, thumbs up. There. Yeah. Great. All right. Let's move on over to mage. The awakening the storytelling game of modern sorcery. And Chris will present this in a rapid fire.
Hi, this is Chris Hanley, aka Dr. Ether, for the Darker Days podcast. And this time, I'm coming for the rapid fire, Mage the Awakening. Mage is a game of modern day sorcery, and allows you to depict a game of a shadow war between wizards and mages and sorcerers, where they fight for ancient mysteries, new spells, and for the control of reality itself. It is a game about freedom and control. It is a game about knowledge and insight in the face of hubris and decadence. So, what type of things can you play in Mage? What can you emulate? Well, Mage allows you to emulate such things seen in The Dresden Files, Neverwhere, Constantine, The Matrix, Dark City, Pi, The Craft, The Covenant, Buffy, Inception, The Fountain, uh, the works of H.P. Lovecraft, and the concepts and ideas presented by Philip K. Dick, and in such series as, as for example, Ghost in the Shell, and uh, similar dystopian series. So, Mage. Who are these mages? Where do they come from? Mage puts forward a history uh, for the setting where Far in the past, not even ancient, but even more older than that. Back when Earth, our realm, was connected to all other uh, realms, such as the spirit and to the supernal realms, there was a island which would go on to be known as Atlantis, this being one of the names it could be known by. Here, on this island, people were drawn to it, and it was here that people learnt the ways of magic. They learnt how to draw down the power from the supernal realms and have it act within our own world. Over time, mages here grew, uh, built up a society, and as with all societies, there was hubris, there was a fall. A war erupted between the mages on the island of Atlantis. The losers were cast to the corners of the world, and the winners began their next stage. They erected something known as the Celestial Ladder which would allow them to not only draw down power from the supernal realms, but actually travel to them and to remain there on the thrones of reality. And so the mages who had fled in exile returned and war began again, and the celestial ladder shattered. Those mages that did take the thrones of reality became the exiles, and those that did not take the thrones, but remained in the supernal realms, became the oracles. We'll explain those two groups later. But what of the celestial ladder? It had shattered, and in its place was a void, the abyss, which prevented the magic of the supernal realms from flowing into our world. What does this mean? It means humans lost the ability to perform magic, and also lost the ability to awaken to its knowledge. They were afflicted by something known as the Sleeping Curse. However, mages did get their powers back. Humans did begin to awake again. Why? The Oracles. These Atlantean kings and princes went to each of the supernal realms and there built one of the Watchtowers. These Watchtowers, five in total, al allow for magic to flow into our world and allow mortals to awaken to magic and find their way and find the path to these supernal realms. So, there's five supernal realms. What does this mean? Each of the supernal realms is attached to a particular path of mage. 
And this means that that path and that mage have a particular speciality in magic. So, let's go through the realms. The first is the primal wild, and mages of this realm have command over spirit and life. There is the ether, a realm of light and fire and lightning, and here mages gain command over prime and forces. Then there is the realm of pandemonium, filled with demons and darkness, and there mortals can learn to gain command of the abilities over space and mind. Then there are those mages that follow a path that leads them to the realm of Stygia. And here they gain power over the very forces, the very mechanisms of death and matter. And then finally there are the mages who go to the realm of Arcadia, and there they gain command over the powers of fate and time. So you have a path, and each of these paths has a particular name. We won't go into those just now. So, the, the mages were split off from the supernal realms, the abyss has occurred, and the sleeping curse has been overcome with the building of watchtowers. Now, what groups do these mages fall into beyond their paths? Well, four orders of mages exist, known as Atlantean orders, or the diamond. They are the remnants of the society of Atlantis, and they war against their oppressors, so that humanity may once more wake up to their full, uh, their full birthright to, to magic. The first is the Adamantine Arrow. They are a group of mages who are devoted to the concept of war and that life is, uh, life is all a trial and this trial and tribulation brings enlightenment. So their magic naturally reflects warfare in whatever form that may take, for not all warfare is physical. Then there are those mages who are part of the Guardians of the Veil. These mages believe magic should be earned by merit alone and that it is dangerous for magic to fall into the wrong hands, or those without the wisdom to use it. For misuse of it brings on paradox, and allows the abyss to grow, and for magic to become weaker. They create shadow societies and mystery cults, so that humans may be slowly indoctrinated in the ways of Atlantean high magic. The next group is the Mysterium. They are archaeologists, they are bookkeepers, they are the ones that discover the lost magic of Atlantis, and they seek every temple that they can find, so they may have new tools to use against their enemies. And finally, there is the Silver Ladder. They are the mages who wish to lead all of humanity to their birthright, and lead the war against the oppressive exarchs. They believe in command and believe in unity of the Atlantean orders. These four Atlantean orders form something Together, an organization may be called the Diamond, but they also form a greater organization known as the Pentacle, for there is a fifth group, a group which never existed during the time of Atlantis. This group is the Free Council, and they are majors that believe that magic is created by humanity, even within the cage of reality that the Exarchs have locked us into. Humans find and make their own magic and their own tools within their own cage. So who do these mages fight against? Who are they warring against? The Exarchs? Yes. And their servants? The Seers of the Throne. Again, this is a shadow war, and the, the Exarchs and their cultists, maybe, 
It's one way to describe them. Work with behind and within society to stop Mage's awakening and preventing humanity to uh, ascending to its birthright. But why do this? Why would other Mages join the Seers of the Throne? Because they think that in return for performing this work for their masters, they too will ascend to the supernal realms and the thrones of heaven. Another group of mages is known as the Banishers, and simply they have seen far too much magic, and it has broken them in such a way that they no longer wish to have their powers, and they believe that humanity would be better off without it. And so they go about hunting other mages down and other supernatural entities in order to make the world safe, and so they may finally rest and put down their tools of magic. So, we talked about mage society and the paths. And finally, we have magic itself. Mage makes use of a very flexible system where magic is represented in ten forms, known as the arcanum. These ten are split into five groups of two. Each of these two represents a higher and lower ideal. For instance, the realm of Stygia is the realm where the powers of death flow from, and the lower form of death, the ideal of death, is matter, because both are inert objects, and both death and matter represent the idea of transmutation from one form to another. So the other groupings you have are mind, in the higher form, and space, which is the lower form, prime, which is a higher form, and forces, which is the lower form, spirit being a higher form, and the lower form of that being life. And finally, fate being the higher form, and time being the lower form. So that's the forms of magic. And so mage makes use of different ideas where you may have different mastery of these, uh, of these powers. And by combining your mastery of these powers, you are then able to work magic in different forms. So a combination between, say, death and, uh, let's say, space would allow you to destroy a region of space, maybe a pocket realm. But it's this clever combination that means that any player can create a new spell on a whim and create things known as ropes, which are spells which are so uh, religiously used that they remain ever-present. For them to use and so that others may learn that ability easily. So that's the magic system. Is there anything more we need to talk of? Well, mages can internalize this magic and they can join groups known as legacies, which have innate magical abilities. And also, mages have to be careful of their magic. The sleeping curse despises magic. The Abyss is the antithesis of reality and magic itself. It wants nothing more but complete and utter annihilation and nothingness. And this means that the Sleeping Curse, which the Abyss has caused, mean, uh, basically means that humans resist the works of magic. They resist magic occurring within our world. Our world follows particular rules, and magic always breaks those. So mages have to work magic carefully. They have to make it look coincidental as part of our reality so that it can occur without any problems. A good example of this is, say, using magic to allow a computer to fail or for a security device to open. 
and a mage can simply say, oh well, the power just failed, and that would be, that would make it coincidental. However, if a mage wanted to fly, well that would be vulgar, and it's at those times when vulgar magic is performed, mages have the danger of invoking paradox. Paradox is simply the real our reality snapping back at us, snapping back at mages, and preventing them in performing their works. Worse still is that paradox also can help bring elements of the abyss into our realm. So there you have it. That's Mage in a nutshell. I hope it's been informative, and I hope you have great fun in using this game. The best, one of the best things I would have to say about Mage is it's very open. It, it makes the most of imaginative players and rewards their imagination and creativity. And one of the best things of Mage is that every single book in the world of darkness is ripe for plundering for ideas, as other supernatural entities make for great antagonists. Anyway, that's all. Thanks for listening. Alright guys, so uh, I kind of haven't read Mage the Awakening, so... Jason! I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much going to leave this up to you, although I do have one point I'd like to discuss later on about Xenoarchaeology. Cool. Okay, cool. So yeah, Mark, Mage of the Awakening, I mean, yeah, uh, really fantastic game um, that I think, uh, like a lot of New World of Darkness games, has grown into itself. Um, it's... It, mechanically speaking, they're clearly trying to do initially the same kind of thing that they were doing with Mage the Ascension, albeit with a different setting. Um, and much as I'm a huge Ascension fan, I was really thrilled to see the, the very strong Gnostic element that's in Mage the Awakening. Um, it's an area they've got a lot of interest in. So seeing that plugged into the game as a setting element was fantastic. It was something I did with my Ascension games. So seeing a new game with all this fresh material that I could plunder and loot... Uh, absolutely fantastic um mage the awakening uh, for me the only thing that i suppose stopped me from from dropping ascension as a game um was that it's uh, it's very has a, has a very structured set of rules and while i can't disagree with any individual rule really in uh, in mage the awakening as a storyteller for me there's just too many of them um, mm. so instead well so what i what i've done is taken the bits that i like and plugged them back into ascension to kind of create this freaky hybrid um but you know that kind of minor niggle aside it's it's very well constructed um i think the core book mike is is a, is a hard read um because it's doesn't nail some of the game's best concepts right out the gate uh, and it takes a couple of other books tome of the mysteries is a, is a good example oh, of this tome of uh, watchtowers as well is... to, and, and also um intrude uh not intruders is it intruders no in, uh, um I've forgotten the damn name of it. The one with all the uh, the Atlantean uh, myths at the beginning. Oh. Ruined Temple. Shoot. Secrets of the Ruined Temple. That's it. Yeah. Secrets of the Ruined Temple. That one is utterly fantastic and pretty much, to my mind, required reading um, for, for Major um, Awakening. I also, I have to say Sanctum and Sigil because it goes more into uh, how Mage Cabals work um, mm -hmm. and how they form together and also just more on the politics of their conciliums. It's, it's a must-have read. There's... Yeah, um, you were saying with Mage Awakening, it, it, it feels like there's a lot of rules in there to use, and yeah. you just don't, it feels a bit overwhelming, and having run and finished a Changeling Chronicle, I can say the same about that, and I would say I'm glad that, that all the rules are there that you could use, but it's 
the my main advice would be don't feel intimidated that you need to start using them all because there's enough yes. there's enough in the magic to have enough fun like the paradox rules it's great to have loads of individual paradox things occurring but you know it's hard to be creative like that time and time again week in week out when paradox may or may not occur and have something cool and wiggy like a paradox kind of spirit or paradox realm or whatever occurring mage that's hard to do um and you should always like hold those back as a story element um I, agree. I mean, one of the initial problems with Mage was, as you say, it's the, um, the the mythology they presented, which everyone just kind of, some people just went, oh, God, no, Atlantis? And... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, that bothered me, because, in, you know... In, I didn't in care. Vampire the Masquerade, no one complained about Enoch. You know, it's the same yeah. damn story. It's exactly the same story, uh, more or less. There's an ancient city, you know, and then someone broke it, and then there was a flood. Uh, and nothing suck, you know. But, and but, but Mark, Mark, there wasn't a Disney movie about Enoch two years before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I never saw that movie, so but I have heard the Disney thing mentioned a few times. But <laughs> yeah. Um. And what's the other thing? I, was I don't know. About? Maybe they could have gotten away with it by calling it something else, you know, and uh, like you or Lemuria or yeah. There's enough you can yeah. use. Exactly, and that's where I think um, Secrets of the Ruined Temple yeah. really comes into its own because it, it says, well, look, what if Atlantis was, and then lists, you know, 50-odd pages of some of the craziest stuff out there, you know, including uh, including some Philip K. Dick stuff, uh, which is, you know, he's a, clearly a big inspiration in the game, but the whole Atlantis never ended idea is just fantastic. I thought, right, that's yoinked right away, right there. Uh, really, really good. Yeah. I think and as, also... As a game, Sorry, carry on. I was going to say, one of the things I, I really love, another book, I, I know we're saying, like, Major Awake can go buy it and play it, but you need to buy, like, and have to buy the other books with it to really go to town with it. Um, the Exarchs book, um, the book for Seas of the Throne, I've finished reading it, and Which if you Seas want... Or Reign of the Exarchs? I know, the actual Seas of the Throne book. Seas of the Throne, right, uh, yes. And... You read that and you compare them to old school mage technocracy, and you just feel like the technocracy are just are just kids compared to these guys. They're just so they're so um, I find the exiles so completely sinister, especially because um, whereas old mage kind of had that whole kind of magic versus science and and all about paradigm about consensual reality, the big difference is that mage the awakening is about objective reality. And about yeah. the cage and finding finding magic within the cage that works, and finding bits of magic within the cage that still work from from the time of Atlantis. And the fact that the Exarchs are not about science; they're about control. And so yeah. they're men in black, but using weird, you know, weird magical sigils. So to me, that's scarier than the men in black walking around with, you know, small, small kind right. of like ta- ta- ray guns or or so forth, it's, um, or hit yeah, well, marks. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a hit marks, they're cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, there's, um, I think there's an interesting angle there with, uh, with Ascension, you know, magic versus science. I think uh, a number of its later writers have said, well, look, it's, it really was supposed to be about freedom versus control. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, Malcolm Shepard's a great, a great kind of uh, proponent of that, of that viewpoint. And rightly, I think, um, uh, but I agree with you that, uh, as with a, a lot of the comparisons we've been making, the New World of Darkness version, Mage of the Awakening, gets it right out of the gate. They, they, mm. they nail it from the outset. Because, you know, 
I guess they've had the 13 odd years beforehand to to kind of find the tone. Um, one 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 comparison I've always found interesting is the finding the supernal in mm. Awakening and then comparing it to what glimpses you have of the same idea in Mage the Ascension. Uh, in Ascension, the idea is that you know your magic comes from your avatar, which is a f- the fragment of one of the pure ones, which you know who who hail from this essentially supernal existence um, that was shattered uh, into into the existing universe. And that's a really interesting parallel with Mage the Awakening, where the supernal again is this un you know unblemished existence outside of the universe, and mages create magic by drawing it down into the fallen world. Um, so you have an idea there where both games, in fact, feature magic being produced by the supernal, um, whereas in Mage of the Ascension, you explicitly have a shard of the supernal inside you. Um, and in Awakening, uh, in a certain essence, the supernal realm exists internal to the mage uh, as much as it does external to, uh, to the fallen world. So I've actually, I, was actually, I found them closer there uh, than they at first appear on the surface. I don't know what uh, if you know if that rings true uh, across no, the across the game. That's quite cool. Um, what else was going to say about mage? I mean, I mean, one of the first things when you open up the book is how much is devoted to magic, like the actual magic system, and yeah. even better, examples, examples, Lots examples, examples, yeah. all the ropes. And one of the things that it says, and the one one of the nice elements in in the setting is that ropes are something to be to be traded and to be stolen. Yeah. They're now a commodity. Right. And that's just like, thank God for that. Because they, it was, again, it was, it was hinted in Ascension, but it really wasn't built upon. And, yeah. and of course, for, for people coming into Mage, you go, well, what can I do with my character? Well, there's 20 rotes there you can do with your, uh, with your Arcana. And yeah. if you don't have the rope, well, you can just do it as, uh, as creative thaumaturgy. So just, you can do it anyway. You just can't do it as easily. Mm. And I love that. It's just, it's just brilliant. Um, and I'm I love legacies. Rose, yeah. Legacies, legacies are great. Are great. Oh, Giving well, roads an, an actual value in the game. I, I mean, uh, Yongton House ruled into Ascension right away. It's a real strength of Awakening, uh, like you say. You know, you, in most cases, your dice pool is going to be better. Um, your paradox uh, is going to be lighter, uh, easier on you. You're going to have a lighter resonance imprint, uh, and most of all, they they function as treasure and trade. So you can, well, I'll teach you the Ball of Abysmal Flame if you give me, you know, six hundred tass or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, very very good. Oh, yeah. and, and, and oh, sorry, yeah, go for it, Mike. Thanks. Um, and uh, roads just kind of make sense in a way because I- you're always going to have that like kind of go-to spell, or just in real life you have your your go-to um, I don't know text editor. Like I've got I've got text edit, I've got you know, open office. You've got the <laughs> one that you particularly go to, but you also have other skills that you can use in other other software. Um, just to put it um, yeah, that I was going to say, Mage the Awakening is there's an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> you want you you want to you want to remove someone from history? There's an app for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and of course, one of the big things, one of the big changes from Mage Awakening is they they split they split uh, the entropy sphere essentially into into uh, fate and into uh, death. And yeah. I really, when I saw the death arc on him, I was like, that's that's brilliant. The because it's not only just 
it's the true end of things, the true transition of things. Whereas kind of the entropy, the entropy sphere was a bit, you know, open to abuse. So I much like prefer the Arcana as they stand now. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I think there's a lot, uh, uh, a lot of good elements in the splitting of the Arcana. I'm not 100% sold on on the whole death equals shadows, um, and there's a lot of stuff that mm. it seems to have kind of stolen from the spirit arcanum um but overall i think uh, i think certainly with the fate side of it they managed to get it right i'm not 100 percent sold on death but fate is its as its own arcanum um, they managed to flesh that out extremely well and and, and uh, get a lot of added usefulness uh, into that as compared to just you know as, as to, to the way entropy worked before um you know and, and to go back to the point that we, we mentioned a couple of times about mage works really well but you really should get all these extra books um I think, like you said, there's a there's a couple of books that are you know, and this I suppose this is a drawback of the of the line, which you kind of need. Um, Ascension was the same, you know, the core book was good, but you could the the game didn't come alive fully in, unless you picked up a couple of others. And for Awakening, I, I think um, Tome of the Mysteries, um, Sanctum and Sigil. Um, you've also mentioned Watchtowers. I would. I would definitely add Secrets of the Ruined Temple, um, but then beyond that, you get these books where you don't you don't kind of need them. They're not you know required, but my God, do they add levels of awesome to your game if you have them? And for me, the the one top of that list is Astral Realms. Uh, that's just an utterly fantastic book. I uh, need really to read that one yet. Yeah. Oh, it's very good, very good. Um, Summoners as well. We mentioned very very cool that one. Um, uh, and intruders. Sits, in, yeah. Crazy stuff. Intruders is is very very good, um, just for kind of you know antagonists and nasty uh, abyssal-born monsters and uh, night horrors the unbidden um, again, on the same kind of level as as predators for werewolf, um, a bunch of really rather unpleasant things to throw at your player characters. Uh, yeah, outstanding game line overall. Cool cool. All right guys, so as the resident mage newbie, I got a couple questions for you, and let's just start off by uh, let's talk about xenoarchaeology so this is a term that uh i grabbed from from the babylon 5 spin-off show crusade i'm not sure if you guys have seen that yeah i've seen that one yeah i have not had the pleasure yeah it's pretty sweet so uh i've been kind of like playing around with ideas for mage um like could they there's definitely like these shattered timelines and the atlantis has been broken so is there a lot of room for like uh like exploring like maybe pocket dimensions and uh just yeah almost like tomb raiding if you will well that's what the secrets of the ruined temple is really about um the the book starts off with a handful of different ways to look at atlantis and then presents essentially you know a bunch of uh, of tombs to raid um you know the idea being that atlantis whatever it was uh, you can almost imagine it as this 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 time or place that exploded and has embedded parts of itself up and down the timeline. Hmm. Um, be that be that an entire tomb or be that uh, as a my own mage game, um, uh, you know, a, a pair of fused coins from an alternate timeline that some guy found inside a statue head. He's like, there was there never was a King Roderick. What the hell is this shit? Um, you know, and you can you can cr- crank the weirdness up along the along the level as much as you want. So absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, and as you said, with the idea of uh, pocket realms, I mean, um, Mage the Awakening uh, allows you to explore various different parts of reality. So you you have obviously you can go into the shadow, which is featured in in, uh, in Werewolf. Um, with the Book of the Dead, it's it's fairly easy to like uh, deal with ghosts and then go into the underworld. Um, 
there's nothing really stopping you investigating even things like the hedge of uh, of um, of changeling and then you can start dealing with the various different layers of the astral realms which represents you know your personal internal uh mind and subconscious and as you go down you get finally into kind of like the dream space of the entire world and that's where you find all the the um the possibilities and those are like other dimensions and other realms so yeah you can definitely do xeno archaeology where there's another earth where chromag man never you know went extinct and still exists so basically yeah sliders yeah um (laughs) totally you can totally do sliders um I was going to, and on that note, um, with dealing with like your own internal, you could all with your own internal um, astral realm. So you deal with your own dream space. So it's it's totally plausible to find, um, I guess, Atlantean ruins within the dreams of your own subconscious, which is a crazy concept. Um, and you can relate that to the fact that uh, another type of spirit they introduce in Mage is the whole idea of dealing with goiter, which are your own personal demons that you, you yeah, bring out. Great. And the worst thing about those is they can start you know, starting to use your own abilities, your own powers. So, um, yeah, Xeno Archaeology, do it. It'll be fun. Yeah. All right, cool, cool. Yeah, second plus for the goetic demons, very good. Great. So, is that all we have to say about Mage? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but we've got to stop somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just as a, a last comment, as a, as a Mage Ascension player, uh, if, if you're a Mage Ascension storyteller, don't be put off by the fact that it's not purple. Um, you know, there are enough ideas in every single Mage the Awakening book that I've ever read to plug back into your Ascension games. So, whatever version of the of, of the mage game you're into you really want to go out and pick up uh, some of these books because they are they are fantastic all right guys the cursed episode is done we finished we've won we beat it no one got struck by lightning that's good <laughs> so uh with that mark uh, where can listeners reach us darker days radio at gmail.com and also on uh, facebook darker days radio and you can also catch us on Twitter, um, and surprise, surprise, we're Darker Days Radio. And also we have a forum on wodnews.net. You can check it out there and leave us a message. We'll get back to you. We should probably make a, a new secret frequency thread and uh, start yep. getting new ideas for that. Get some new ideas rolling in. Yep. Mm-hmm. And all right, guys, I think that's it. Brilliant. Let's all right. Sign Take off. Take care. See ya.